Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 39, with our guest today, RJ St. John. Hey, what's Hello, going on? <laughs> today we are reading from what the, what the New York Times called Everything a 20th Century War Memoir Could Possibly Be, A Daydream of Battlefield Glory Come True. The 867-page tome, which you will be able to see on the YouTube version of this show, About Face by Colonel David H. Hackworth, U.S. Army, retired. Um, this is a big book, and we're going to have a big conversation um, about this book. Reading directly from the introduction uh, to About Face, and I quote, a professional soldier's life does not easily does not fit easily into memoir unless the soldier is a senior commander, and then the memoir centers on grand strategy and not on the coarse details of the battlefield. An exception, and there are not very many, is the personal memoirs of U.S. Grant, which we read earlier this month on the podcast. A common soldier's life seems better suited to fiction, where the author can calibrate the distance between the protagonist and the material. The novelist can assert coherence and moral balance, and it is not necessary that he or she ever hear, heard a shot fired in anger. Stephen Crane, for example, or Olivia Manning. The personality of the author is of no consequence. The best single exception, explanation, sorry, of infantry tactics that I have ever read is in Marcel Proust's The Garamantes Way. Of course, the novelist is a writer first and foremost comfortable on the higher slopes of irony and paradox. The novelist's reality is a written reality forged from facts and memories, fragments of this and that, reprocessed and rewired into a narrative, a story. The soldier's memory is a crowded place. More can quote-unquote happen in a minute of a soldier's wartime than in a novelist's lifetime, and happen again and again, moments of such excruciating incoherence that to shape it and balance it is to counterfeit it. One might as well try to shape a tempest. These moments are fantastic, scarcely credible, grotesque, sentimental, heartless, usually inexplicable, rarely of beauty, terrible or otherwise, though they can be noble. There is no distance between the man and the action. Nothing falls between the man and the chaotic moment except the years of training and anticipation, a quote-unquote predicament of exceptional awkwardness, according to another soldier at Antietam. It is never as you thought it would be. It is hard to conceive of a more demanding assignment than leading troops into battle and keeping them there, saying to a man, do that, knowing that his death might result. A soldier in wartime is a law unto himself, a world unto itself, an exaggerated, exasperated world of utter disorder and misrule, the devil's paradise. It is either that or unspeakably boring, weeks and months of oceanic tedium. Yet, there are those who love it. Love all of it. The drill, the BOVAC, the mess, the tent, the duty, the noise, and the silence. Probably no segment of American society is as little known and little understood as the professional army. It is a nation apart with its particular customs, laws, language, economy, vices, and virtues. This is a state of affairs that seems to suit everyone. The civilians can retail cliches about the soldiers, and the soldiers retail cliches about themselves with no one the wiser. The army is, a high, is as hierarchical as the church and as class-conscious and snobbish as Great Britain. West Point, it's Eton, and Army War College, it's Oxford. <clears throat> the army today resembles a great ponderous American corporation, but it was not always so. 
The army used to be filled with officers who believed their highest calling was to lead troops into battle, not as one more station of the cross on their way to the E-ring of the Pentagon, military Gethsemane. That was why they were in the army instead of general dynamics. There were soldiers who studied infantry tactics with care, with the care and intelligence that Picasso devoted to the female face, and so thoroughly that the knowledge became second nature, almost instinct. The soldier is rarely articulate on these matters, as anyone who has read a battle plan or an article in one of the military magazines can attest. These documents, though far from literature, retain a coarse authority. All soldiers know that battle is not symmetrical. It exists in its own lawless reality, unique even as it reverberates. Verdun may have its echo in Dien Bien Phu and Dien Bien Phu in the Quezon, but these are only echoes, not the thing itself. Hemingway's scrupulously orchestrated retreat from Caporetto is a narrative of great power. Novels and histories are wonderful and indispensable, but they are not the thing itself. This book is the thing itself. In the civilian world, where acts of leadership, heroism, sacrifice, and courage are often rare, non-obvious, and overlooked, many leaders stymied by the history and circumstances of the environments they're leading in, will often look to the military or the sports world for examples of quote-unquote pure leadership. The military provides examples of leadership that seem sharper, clearer, and more definitive because, in comparison to the messy, seemingly chaotic civilian world, the world of the military, at least to the uninitiated, appears to operate with much more clarity. Soldiers are tasked with killing people and breaking things. Officers are tasked with making sure the killing and the breaking doesn't get out of control. And generals and civilian leaders are tasked with providing clear-eyed strategic goals and a definition of victory. At least they are when it all works. But no plan, military or civilian, successfully survives first contact with the enemy, both without and within. Our book today, as I mentioned before, all 867 pages of it, is a combination memoir, strategic analysis, and historical document covering the successes and failures of one man walking through this system in the way a soldier would walk through a field of IEDs or landmines. David Haskell Hackworth, born November 11th, 1930, died May 4th, 2005, also known as Hack, was a prominent military journalist and a famous former United States Army colonel who was decorated in both the Korean and the Vietnam War. Hackworth is known for his role in the creation and the command of Tiger Force, a military unit which was formed in South Vietnam to apply guerrilla warfare tactics against Viet Cong guerrilla fighters. The man in the black pajamas, such as it were. The youngest colonel in Vietnam at the time of his promotion, he was also praised by General Creighton Abrams. Yes, that's right the developer of the Abrams tank as quote-unquote the best battalion commander I ever saw in the United States Army. He also had another side. He was outspoken, brash, and a man with a sense of morality, mostly public morality anyway, that drove his superiors from the Merchant Marine at age 14 to the Pentagon at age 37 absolutely bat crap crazy. He was in essence as was written in the introduction about him, the thing itself. 
And today on the podcast, we will be talking about the book. And we can't cover, by the way, all 867 pages, nor can we cover all the formative experiences that are in here. So we will be revisiting this book. But we're going to begin with a slice of this book. And we're going to talk about it in context with a man whose experiences mirror some of those in the book and whose observations mirror some of those in the book. And we're going to talk about what we in the civilian world, we who have never humped an ammo can or stood a post or marched on a line with my good friend and former rugby teammate. Yes, we were in the mess together in one way or another <laughs> from many, many years ago. We're not going to use his given name. Thank you. RJ. St. <laughs> John. Welcome to the podcast, RJ. How are you doing uh, Thanks, today? sir. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, thanks for having me here. This is a rare morning recording, so we're, we're getting, we're kicking off correctly. So and Lots of caffeine today. Lots of caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to keep it up. So for those of you who listen, um, you know how I, how I open um, usually with the book and with the excerpt and my little, you know, my little ramble or rant or whatever at the beginning. And, uh, RJ, uh, very confidently gave me the, uh, the feedback, um, uh, because this is the kind of guy he is, uh, that I need to pick up the pace a little bit, make this a little bit more exciting for this book. And so, cause I read it too much like, you know, an audio book or something you could fall asleep to apparently on the podcast on the regular, which is fine. I'm willing to take feedback from anyone. <laughs> Even people who are not professional podcasters. <laughs> really? Really? All right, here we go. <laughs> so we're going to get into it today with uh, with RJ. So I, I gave a brief overview of who you are and what you do, but tell the folks um, where you uh, where you wound up with the military and how you got in there, and then tell us what you've, uh, kind of an overview of what you learned from About Face. Uh, sure. Uh, so my name is RJ St. John. Uh, I went into the United States Marine Corps when I was 17 uh, in the DEP program. I ended up leaving boot camp when I was 18. Uh, went through MCRD San Diego and uh, ended up getting hurt, shattered my shoulder, and they ended up kicking me out. Uh, a couple of years later, when I was working as a contractor for the Air Force doing security, uh, one of my old friends from the Marine Corps actually was there with the Air Force, and he ended up recruiting me into a security forces unit with the reserves. I ended up at the 934th up in Minnesota, uh, where after 12 years uh, with those guys, I ended up getting out as an E6. I uh, fought in Iraq, fought in Afghanistan. Uh, I was with the 506th uh, Air Expeditionary Group and uh, the 838th uh, Air Expeditionary Wing uh, when I was in Afghanistan. Um, as an NCO, uh, I oftentimes operated far beyond what my current rank was just out of necessity, because unfortunately I had a lot of leadership that was not. And so in order to get things done, I kind of had to, I wouldn't say cut corners, but I had to make th sure that things rolled smoothly. And so I gave a lot of my superiors heartburn because I didn't really pay attention to the rank on my sleeve. I just went and got the job done. And I got a lot of, I got a lot of paperwork because of it. Uh, I got my ass chewed quite a bit. Um, didn't really care because at the end of the day, uh, all my kids were taken care of. Uh, the job got done. Everybody went home alive. And I was happy with that particular result. So uh, I went from commanding a fire team of four guys to when I was in Afghanistan, I was running about 80. So as a sector commander uh, doing base security, and then uh, I ended up as NCOIC, which is the non-commissioned officer in charge for all missions off base, which for the Air Force is extremely rare. 
So when we were running uh, PSD missions down to uh, Shindan um, with the base commander and the assistant uh, base commander, Bagman, who was our finance officer when they were trying to rebuild that particular part of Afghanistan, and then uh, some other kind of PSD missions, which PSD is personal security detail. And so I was responsible for the lives of these particular individuals to make sure that they all went home uh, in one piece. Um, I ran 60 some odd missions, never, never took a loss, didn't lose a, a package and I didn't lose any of my kids. So um, I think I did okay. You were clearly a professional and an expert and we like having professionals and experts um, who are not, shall we say, cut from common cloth um, <clears throat> on the show because... Well, quite frankly, what the hell do I know about any of that? Uh, I've reached that wonderful time in my life where I can say, yeah, you know, I don't know anything about any of that. And maybe I can bring somebody on who knows something I don't know and sure. find out about what they know. And that can help our listeners. The way you're wired and the way that Hackworth reads is being wired. And obviously, I mean, I never met the man. I mean, you can see interviews with him all over the Internet. If you just search, you know, Colonel David Hackworth or if you just search Hack. Uh, Jocko Willick on his podcast, the Jocko podcast, talks about him all the time um, about face when he picked up this book back when he was a young SEAL in the mid-90s. Um, this book really shaped how he thought about leadership. Um, as a matter of fact, he wrote the introduction to the new edition um, of the book that is floating around out in the world now. We don't have that edition, and that was not his words that I read from in the introduction. I have the original. I have the OG. Yeah, um, so do I. <laughs> and, I, and I, you know, when I'm not knocking Jocko or Tim Kennedy um, or any of those guys um, that are in the special forces um, that have had that hardcore experience, but you all share something in common. And it is that sense, and this is what people in the civilian world like about the military. It is that sense that, and I've heard this from people in the civilian world, um, is we get the sense over here that there's no dysfunction. Everything just works because the outcomes are so right. Because the, I'm not saying we're correct, by the way, because the outcomes are so clear to us over here. We're over here. And I hear this frustration from veterans sometimes coming back to work in the civilian world. The outcomes are all muddy. No one knows the goals. The mission is effed and we're off. We're, we're never off to the races. We're just collecting a check and it's a bunch of lazy bums. I've heard this feedback before. Well, from the from the civilian world to the military, it's dear God, everything's clear there. There's clear command structure. People shut up and get in line. Oh my God, why can't we have that? Talk to us about. And again, just like with hack, you're wired in a similar way, right? Where let's protect my guys. Let's make sure the mission happens. I heard that even in your description of who you are and what you do. Talk to us about the differences between those two for the uninitiated. You know, my audience is community members. My audience is people running for political office. My audience is people who are managers inside of organizations. Um, less than 1% of our male population has military experience. Sure. Um, so most people don't run into anybody who's ever served. Um, that's a rarity, even with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last 20 years that have been so publicized. What's the difference between the military world and the civilian world? What are the similarities? Um, uh, well, I guess I'll answer the first part of it wasn't really a question, but more of a statement that you made in terms of people think that the military functions just as a well-oiled machine. And I'm going to say no to that um, <laughs> uh, a lot. I mean, we have 
we have phrases in the military like hurry up and wait Mm -hmm. and that is never more pronounced than especially when you're trying to gear up for any kind of operation training or military um combat operation where nobody wants to be late and so you know your battalion commander will say hey i want everybody here at zero six all right cool we're all here at zero six but you know, the major's like, wow, I want to make sure everybody's here early, so let's make them here at zero five. All right, sweet. Okay, well, then he gives all those orders to the lieutenant. Lieutenant thinks that we're all supposed to be there at zero five because that's what the BC supposedly said, even though it's what the major said. And so for him, he's like, well, we got to be there an hour early, make sure we have our crap. So we'll get there at zero four. And then he passes it down to senior NCOs who are briefing all the team leaders like me saying, hey, we need to be there at zero three. Roger. So we get all my kids on mine at zero three with all of our kit not understanding that we're going to be standing out there in the freaking cold or the sun or the snow or what have you for four hours waiting for some colonel to come out and be like, cool, everybody's here. All right, you can go back to doing what you're doing. What? And so there's there's a lot of dysfunction yeah. when it comes to structure because while you're very right and so was the introduction on the book in regards to there's a pecking order and there's a pecking order within the rank structure that's very, very similar to what you see in England with the royal family. Um, you know, all the different barons and baronets and dukes and what have you. And there are individuals that I'm not going to talk to you because you didn't go to West Point. I'm not even going to associate with you because, you know, you're from the other classes. That happens a lot in the military. Um you do find individuals that will bridge those gaps occasionally, but they're extremely rare. And generally speaking, those are the officers that we call Mustangs, which are individuals that started off as enlisted, like Hackworth, and then got a commission either through the battlefield, which is extremely rare. I, don't, I can't. I think the last one happened in Vietnam. Or you have these individuals that go to school, want to come back because they see the dysfunction within the leadership structure and they think that they have an, an, a way that they can fix it. That doesn't always seem to be the case. Um, I've got a lot of examples, um, two that I can think of off the top of my head, where I had two lieutenants that were both former enlisted, that one was really, really good. She really cared about us. Um, I watched her go nose to nose with a full bird colonel when he's given her stupid orders that were going to put us in danger. And her as a second lieutenant, all five foot three of her screaming at this colonel saying, no, I'm not going to do it unless you're coming out there with us. Are you coming out there with us? No. Great. Well, then we're staying here. We're not going to do your stupid nonsense. Conversely, I had another lieutenant who was also a former sergeant who he was a straight yes man. And it didn't matter if they wanted us standing out on the flight line, wrapped in barbed wire, naked, singing a song. He would make sure that we could do it because that's what the colonel wanted. And so there was no common sense with this particular individual. And so with the former lieutenant, she actually saw the big picture and she really cared about those underneath her and to where she wasn't going to put them needlessly in danger. Now, when I was overseas, were we in danger all the time? Generally speaking, yes. But she understood that. And she understood how to read orders in terms of we don't have enough bodies to do this particular mission. You're going to go do it anyway. No, I'm not. And the fact that she had the wherewithal to stand her ground to a superior officer several levels above her and tell him, no, we all witnessed this. And that for us was the premiere of leadership because she wasn't going to just throw us away like this other lieutenant happily would have just to get another step ahead or another notch on his belt in terms of good graces for this particular commander. 
when I work with clients um, in the training and development world, we're going to talk about training here today because I think I think a key to all of this is training. And Hackworth actually, in his early experiences mm-hmm. in Korea, uh, <clears throat> right after he left the Merchant Marine, because all this guy was ever bred for was war. I mean, that was <laughs> that was literally what he was bred for. And there are some people like this, by the way. They're just bred for war, you know. Um, just like some people are bred to be carpenters or some people are bred to be um, uh, entrepreneurs or some people are bred to be um, uh, athletes, right? Some people are bred to be warriors. And by the way, we used to in our culture have a larger, or Western culture, I mean, not just the United States. We used to have a larger acknowledgement of this, a larger public acknowledgement of this, that just some people are just bred for war, and thus you need to go find a war for them to do the thing that they do best. The English, by the way, had a really good solution for this. They just put them on ships and sent them around the world to go conquer shit. Yeah, right. (laughs) We in the United States struggle with this because, well, just of who we are. Um, and sort of how we're wired around isolationism and around our founding. When you see, though, someone engaging around respect and around seeing the big picture and around having the courage to stand her ground, like in that example that you gave, um, we try to frame that as advocacy. And when we do training and development, because that's a softer word, it sounds nicer, but it's, but, but in in, in essence, it's the same thing. It's, well, it is, it's standing. Okay. I'll use an even clearer term. It's standing up for your people. hundred percent. Yeah, no, it's not yourself, your people. Right. And that's something that Hackworth consistently did. Um, throughout Vietnam, particularly, I mean, most notoriously in Vietnam, and we will not be covering his Vietnam experiences on the podcast today, but he learned that as a baby soldier in Italy at the end of World War II when we were trying to pacify Europe, uh, when Tito, Marshal Tito, who nobody remembers anymore, <clears throat> was running around doing the thing that he was doing in what used to be Yugoslavia. That country doesn't exist anymore. But um, <laughs> when he was trying to unite all those people and hold off the Russians and the Cold War was beginning to happen, in that moment, Hackworth learned what your female um, your female officer, your female superior, your female sergeant, I guess, is what she was. She was um, lieutenant. Lieutenant. Okay, your female lieutenant. Sorry, your female lieutenant. Got to get the rank correct. Um, your female lieutenant already knew. And at some point, and some people have it. They just have that interior knowledge. Like, I've always known, no, no matter what team I've led, in the, like, 20 years I've been leading teams, you are, you're nonsense and your people eat first. Everybody get in line and you first. Everybody. And if somebody comes over and screws with my people, it's not their job to fix the problem. It's my job to fix the problem. And you're going to fire me? Yeah, good luck. That's the only move you have. You can lead these people. You're welcome and you have a good day. Which is why I was not really wired to go. I wasn't wasn't good. I wouldn't have done well in the military. (laughs) They would have booted me out within 10 seconds. (laughs) Like like, like I said, I I gave a lot of my senior NCOs and some of my officers heartburn because I had the very same attitude. And and they're, especially when I was overseas, you know, their one threat was, you know, know, we'll send you home. I'm like, oh, don't do that. Oh, please. No. Really? You're going to send me back stateside and I cannot get shot at for sweet. Let, let's do this. I can, but I can sleep till 10 o'clock in the morning if I want. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, but all, all joking aside though, it, it was one of those things where, um, while everybody is replaceable to an extent, right. I think that a lot of people, uh, in middle management, 
um, tend to look at, well, we can just find another one like you. When I got out of the military, the amount of classes that I taught specifically for my unit, and I'm not saying that I was the greatest thing ever. I was very good at what I did as an instructor and as a leader, but I had a whiteboard with probably close to 20 different NCOs on there taking over my various responsibilities. So I was doing the job that I needed 20 other people to assign to because this is what they were good at each individually. I just happened to be one of those weird cogs in the machine where I could do everything. And while was I replaceable? Sure, but you were gonna need an army to replace me. And it's very similar to Hackworth too, in terms of the loyalty that his people had for him. When they finally, when Hackworth finally ended up getting out, the amount of people that were genuinely upset and uh, I, I mean, I hate to use a, a, a term like bummed out, but they were like going, wait, what? Like Hack's no longer in the army? What are we going to do? And Hackworth was one of those very, very rare commanders where he knew everything from the ground up. Because even if you go back to when he was in Italy in 46 with Trust Company, mm -hmm. learning from his NCOs, he learned everything from the ground up. And as he went up the, the hierarchy and was promoted to staff sergeant uh, when he was in Korea and then ended up with a battlefield commission to lieutenant, he still knew what everybody below him did. And right. in my particular experience, and also in my opinion, that's extremely rare because had you taken me out of any of the equations where I was at overseas or even stateside, you couldn't just drop another sergeant in my particular position because they'd have no idea what, what was going on. You still have to rebuild the trust within the company that you just got dropped into. You need to go and find out which officers are trustworthy and which ones are not, <laughs> you know, that there's, there's, a, there's so many things to, to drive up there um, that it's really difficult when you are put in those particular positions. However, it comes back to the two basic leadership principles that I learned from day one when I was an 18 year old Marine. And the two leadership principles that I learned were step number one is mission accomplishment. Number two is troop welfare. And I think that Hackworth was really good at both of those because he never deviated from getting the mission done and taking care of his guys, regardless of what it cost him, either personally or professionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So and that's and before I read this book, that's really how I operated, too, is that I took care of my guys because I knew that even guys that didn't like me, they knew I took care of them. And yeah. kind of like I said before with, you know, the military is not a well-oiled machine. Hey, guess what? Even in combat, there are guys that don't like you, but they're going to be, if you're a good leader, they're going to be right next to you because if anybody's going to hurt you, it's going to be them. Right. And they're not going to let the bad guy take a, take a cheap shot because right. they're going to want that. They're going to want you hundred percent functional when it comes to throwing down. Right. So, and that's, that's the mark of a good leader. When you got somebody who hates you, who's protecting your six and watching your back because they want that confrontation. That's a, that's a, that's a good, that's a good leader there. Back to the book, back to <laughs> about face. Let's talk a little bit about the beginning with baby David Hackworth. Um, and he infamously says in the book, I, I freaking love this, World War II had the gall to stop without me. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> he entered the Merchant Marine uh, when he was 14. Um, the man was an orphan, right? Um, mother and father both passed away. Um, he got an old, a random old man, he talks about it in the book a little bit, random old man to sign up him and a buddy to be the Merchant Marine, to be in the Merchant Marines. 
Um, the buddy wound up being 4F because of a bad foot or a bad ear or something like that. And uh, <laughs> basically the buddy winds up riding away in like a boat or something. Or no, Hack winds up riding away in a boat and the buddy's like on the pier going, bye, I can never <laughs> see that dude again. <laughs> and then... I think, that, I think that only cost him a bottle of wine, didn't it? It only cost him a bottle of wine <laughs> back in the day. Admission to the military was cheap. Uh, so... <laughs> So um, let's get back to the book. Let's talk a little bit about trust, and let's talk about, well, baby Hackworth. Gradually, most of the World War II warriors went back to the States, and the post-Wild West feeling of lawlessness, this is when he was in Italy, went too. It had been great fun for a kid to be part of the Hell for Leather spirit that had made up the 752nd, the 75 Deuce. But like the tightening of a screw, one turn at a time, each day the unit became more military. The who-gives-a-damn attitude of the remaining 7-5-deuce combat leaders and troopers replaced by the exacting discipline of the peacetime army. For the next four years, I learned my trade. One year with the recon company of the Tank Battalion of the Po Valley, and three more with the Trieste United States Troops Trust. The illustrious unit whose 5,000 handpicked members, Walter Winchell, a journalist, called, and I quote, the chrome-plated soldiers of Europe. We worked hard during those years, long, merciless days of training, repeating, repeating, and repeating until we got it right. Our transformation into soldiers inspired and monitored by those battle-savvy sav battle NCOs who well knew that discipline and tactical proficiency on the battlefield were direct results of discipline and combat skills instilled on the parade and training grounds. At night, it was down on our hands and knees, all of us, hand-waxing the barracks floors until we had enough money to chip in and buy a buffer. You could eat off those floors, and if you couldn't, your platoon sergeant would just make you do them again. Just as you could almost be blinded by the brass belt buckles and brown boots that each of us wore polished every night to a dazzling finish. The only way out of these activities was sick call, but rarely was it used as an excuse. It took as much effort to see the dock. You had to strip your bed, cram all your perfectly pressed clothes into a duffel bag, see the supply sergeant and the first sergeant, not to mention the lion's share of a month's pay you'd spend having clothes repressed when you came back, as it did to continue on with the normal routine. Punishment was meted out by a process known as NCO justice. For crimes such as a uniform of less than a starched perfection, a bed that didn't bounce for bounce a quarter or even a mildly insubordinate smirk, the sentence could range from 50 push-ups to double-timing around the parade field, holding a 9.5-pound <laughs> M1 rifle over your head yelling, I'm a shithead, I'm a shithead, until you collapsed. <laughs> we rarely saw an officer above our platoon leader lieutenant, and he was seldom with the troops because of administrative duties, but no one seemed too concerned about it. Above and below on the chain of command, it was well recognized that as fathers, teachers, older brothers, and chief tormentors, in Trieste, the NCO Corps had no equal. Despite our spit and polished perfection, and the never-ending demand for the same, the American soldiers occupying Trieste and the surrounding region were not just parade ground troops. My first assignment, Company D, was the reconnaissance unit of the 7-5 Deuce. My last, the intelligence and reconnaissance, INR platoon, was the eyes and ears of the Trust, 351st Regiment. In both outfits, our job was to patrol the Italian-Yugoslavian border regularly from the port city of Trieste to the Austrian border to the north. The reason for our vigilance was simply that although the war was over, Italy had not yet seen peace.
the reason that passage struck me, and again, this is early in Hackworth's career, like really early, like right at the beginning, he doesn't know anything, is because I run a training and development company, fundamentally, right? And we make training and development products and services that make managers and supervisors better leaders. And I believe in the value and in the importance of training people to be leaders. From the New York Times obituary written about Hackworth in 2005 after the man died, and I quote, he, Hackworth, credited his later combat success to lessons learned from the hard-bitten, hard-drinking sergeants with whom he served in his first assignment, the post-World War II border dispute between Italy and Yugoslavia over the port of Trieste, close quote. People who tell the truth and are unafraid of the consequences for doing so have a hard have a hard won credibility based on experience, and they have the humility to know their limits in the face of the limitless. And these are the people that you want to train future leaders. And that's what he was talking about with his NCO squad. They had humility. They um, they were unafraid of consequences, and they actually understood what was on the other side of the door. Because coming out of World War II. They had seen their buddies' heads blow up, or they'd seen failures of leadership. But training, fundamentally, is what you want to encourage before you implement anything. I wish more organizations did training. What was the importance of training for you, RJ? Because I this is this is this is one of those this is one of those tools in my toolbox. I mean, I bang on about leadership, but really, it's training, 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 and then get down on the barracks floor and spit and polish it again. But we don't. One of the interesting things in reading that passage now out loud was I thought, my God, if we like did this to like the younger generation now, people would quit left and right. Yes. And that's a damn shame, in my opinion, anyway, at all, at all levels. I mean, I don't care if you're training to, like, kill people or you're training to post things on Instagram. I don't care what the level of difficulty is. Tra- re- re- repetitive, boring nonsense that seems to go nowhere from your perspective, but is designed to make you sharper when the game begins. Or to paraphrase from Allen Iverson, we're talking about practice? <laughs> right. Um, no, training is extremely important. And uh, you are very accurate in terms of regardless if it's a military operation or whether you're trying to fine tune the machine that you're uh, currently trying to play with. Uh, I don't know anything about fax machines or copiers. Um, so if that was my particular job, I would expect my home office to at least give me some kind of course or guidance outside of just throwing a manual at me and saying, good luck. Right. And unfortunately, in the military, and a lot in the civilian world, um, I've, I've seen stuff like that. Um, in the military, it's extremely important, especially with what I did, because if you slough on training, um, when it comes to the real world actions, you're going to go home in a bag. And Hackworth said it pretty good. And I heard it a lot throughout my career when I was younger. And also, as I started getting older, the more you sweat in peace, the less you believe in war. Mm-hmm. Training was one of those things that a lot of people just put together a quick action plan to appease their superiors that they could fire people through lickety split so that they could get back to, you know, making money for the company. 
Uh, in this particular case, the company was the United States government. And, and for me, it was the Air Force. Um, we did training as much as possible. However, unfortunately, courtesy of orders coming out of the Pentagon, we also got got saddled with ridiculous things that also came in in terms of training. But because they were trying to streamline it and they were just trying to check the boxes, we were doing things like, oh, I don't know, self-aid buddy care on the computer. Well, you can't really have a computer program teach you how to apply pressure to a sucking chest wound or how to apply a tourniquet or, yeah, um, you know, doing SEER school, which is survival, evasion, resistance and escape. That's a eight week course out in Washington that they somehow managed to cram into a computer program. So people could get a certification saying, hey, I did a SEER course and they can check that box to put it on their rip. So when it came to promotions, people would say, oh, hey, he's been through a SEER something. And that's kind of what it was getting to towards the end of my career. They really watered down a lot of that. And it was disheartening because, again, in real world application, I don't want the kid who learned how to put a tourniquet on a, on a limb on a computer putting one on me if I got a hole in my leg. I want that kid who used to be an EMT in real life, you know, kneeling on my leg, regardless of how much I'm screaming and yelling, you know, slapping me in the mouth to get my attention while he's putting it on for me, making sure I go home alive. And those are just two very minor examples. But in terms of me, I had the option in the reserves that I could either go to a combat school during the summer or I could go work in garrison and check IDs. I went to every combat school that I could. In fact, I went so many times that the 6th, 10th down in Texas had me audit their classes uh, for when they had new instructors coming through saying, hey, we want to make sure that this kid knows what he's talking about. Would you please give us some feedback? And this is coming from their senior NCO cadre and some of their officers who knew my background and knew that I was good at what I did in terms of paying attention and making sure that all my kids got that kind of training. Um, it's extremely important. And, you know, looking into the civilian world, I guess I would put the question as this, if you hire me as a manager and I disappear for whatever reason, COVID, I get in a car accident, I decide just to quit on the spot, you fire me, what have you, as a boss, can you fall into my position and do my job? In my experience, most of them can't. And that's a failure of leadership. That's a failure of training on yourself. You need to be able to know those jobs of the people that are underneath you. And that's what I did when I was in the military. And that's what I focused on all of my kids in training them. You need to know the jobs of everybody above you and below you, because if I get smoked, you need to take over this platoon. You know, as a machine gunner, if you get hit, your A gunner has to be able to, to run that gun. I'm not qualified on that gun. I don't care. Can you make it work? Let's go. Same thing with the RTO, same thing with your medics. Everybody wore a bunch of different hats and we cross-trained them as much as possible because we saw the value and the importance of them being able to have, you know, multi-disciplines that uh, in the civilian world, I don't see a whole heck of a lot. Um, and I'm not trying to be rude, but I look at some secretaries that if I ask them the most basic of things in regards to payroll, I'm shuffled off to a payroll office. When I get to the payroll office and I'm still inquiring, oh, I got to talk to this particular payroll clerk. Ah, this payroll clerk is out on maternity leave. You're going to have to come back next week. All I need is a signature. Yeah, but it's got to be her signature. Are you kidding me? And that's what binds up companies and that's what binds up corporations. That's what binds up the military is that there's so much bureaucracy that you can't get anything done. The the bureaucratic bloat. <laughs> um that's what basically 
I believe fundamentally that's what basically drove Hack out of out of the army and, and yes, in essence, out of the out of the Pentagon is that bureaucratic bloat. Um, and again, I really want to focus on his early experiences here today. However, you can't get away from, and he even talks about it after his two year tour in Korea, or after his couple years of tours in Korea. How, you know, he couldn't advance in the system, even though he had all of this combat experience, leading men, making decisions, killing people and breaking things, advocating for his guys, uh, getting into a fist fight in a lunch line <laughs> and getting his clock cleaned. <laughs> and he was not a big guy. I mean, he was a small, wiry guy. But I mean, just like any, just like all those old boys coming out of World War Two and, and the Great Depression. Didn't matter what size they were; they could all handle themselves. You leave those old boys alone. <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll hit you before you blink. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but he had all of that experience, and the army looked at him and said, "That's not good enough. You got to go to college." And yeah. he didn't know it at the time, and you can tell in the memoir the way it's written. He didn't realize it at the time. Um, and he didn't put a word to it until he was in Vietnam, but that was the beginning of bureaucratic bloat in the army, um, and in the military in general. It was the beginning of the professionalization, as was mentioned in the introduction, of the services. Um, <clears throat> well, and, and don't get me wrong. Look, there's been bureaucratic bloat in the military going back to, like, I was reading something today about Pompey and Caesar. Dear God oh, yeah. in heaven. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not naive, nor am I delusional. Anytime something gets big enough, you're going to have specialization that's just going to get out of control. <sighs> but training. The big pushback I get on training is it takes too much time and there's no outcome immediately. So if there's no ROI outcome immediately from it, we don't want to do it. We want an ROI outcome from that body immediately because it cost us $300,000 to um, to get that, guy, get that guy or that woman hired. And we want our $300,000 back right now, yep. today. And like I'm thinking of a buddy of mine who <clears throat> just got promoted. He's been working as a pilot um, at a major airline, which I will keep nameless. Um, and uh, he's got a background flying for the Air Force, flew for the Air Force in the 90s, got out, worked was now worked for this airline for 20 years. He's now going to be a training instructor. I was actually laughing with him the other day because I was like, oh, now you're going to come over to my world. He's like, start laughing or whatever. Um, <laughs> and we were kind of talking about how you train people. And I said, how much is it costing the airline to train you? And he said, oh, they're going to spend about $300,000 to train me. And I said, oh, they want their money back quickly, don't they? And he started laughing because he's in his 50s. He's like, yeah, they're going to want their money like tomorrow. <laughs> um, this is the challenge of training. How do you – maybe you have some thoughts on this. I don't know. But the bureaucracy wants ROI, whether it's the Army or the airline company or – the the staple company they want that money back sure but they don't they seem to that's that's a short-term view to me right um why is there how do you how do you counter that tension how do you counter that tension between the necessity of the long view versus the tension of we need to get this done right now um you know i mean i think when it comes to return of investment uh, you kind of hit it on the head in terms of like they want it yesterday. Yeah. Uh, how you have, have to get around that, in my opinion, is that as a manager, as a leader, you have to understand that things take time yeah. and that there is no such thing as instant gratification 
when it comes to quality of learning. And if you are getting somebody who, yeah, I know how to do that. I know how to do that. I know how to do that. You know, five minutes after they get out of school, they're just saying it to appease you. You and I both know that. And mm-hmm. hopefully as a manager, you can at least kind of, you know, read through that BS and go, did this individual even pay attention in these courses that we were offering for them? Mm-hmm. Um, now, don't get me wrong. There are a handful of individuals out there where you run them through a course and they take to it like a duck to water. It right. happens. Um, is that the majority? Absolutely not. And so I think just having an understanding from the get-go that if I'm putting money into an individual to train them in a specific skill set, that while they might get some benefit from it right away, that it's going to take time to develop if I want it to develop. And, uh, you know, think people aren't plug and play instruments. Um, yeah. And training is very important just to understand what's going on. Unfortunately, I think a lot of it has to do with the individual's attention spans these days. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I think I remember reading a study not that long ago that most average Americans have an attention span of like 46 seconds and then they're just yep. off to the races to something else. Yep. It's a hummingbird. It's less so, than a hummingbird now. Yeah. Right. And uh, I think part of it, and this is something I dealt with in the military, is that when it's coming, when it comes to training, regardless of what it is, you need to get your people involved hands on because we have a term in the military called being power pointed to death. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff that I saw in the corporate world too, where it's, you know, I cause it death by PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I have individuals, uh, this, when I was working for the state department, I went out to DC for a two week training course on how to be a leader, which I thought was hilarious because everybody in the room who was sitting in that class was either, uh, I think I was the lowest ranking as an E6 Mm -hmm. in the military. I mean, I had like a former command sergeant major, I had two former captains, one former colonel, and I had some 19-year-old kid that was reading to us off of the PowerPoint slides like we were freaking five-year-olds. And I'm going, hold on a second. And so part of my critique back to the cadre was me stating that, you know, I understand that PowerPoints are a training tool. But if you're looking for people that are so brain dead that you have to read for me word for word off those slides, that's not instruction. That's indoctrination, if anything. Can I, and can that, I you, oh, my no, goodness. Oh, my God. Can I tell you how we deal with PowerPoint over here? I mean, we use PowerPoint. Don't get me wrong. We do. But we use it as a placeholder. It's a training tool. No it's, it's sh- even, no, it's not even a training tool. No, I will push back even on that. It is not a training tool. PowerPoint is a place for images to put up on the screen behind you. So that people have something to stare at while you are talking to them and they are writing things down. And then guess what? You get away from the PowerPoint, you take them out into the field, or you take them away from, or you put them in a game or a simulation or something where they can do some kind of activity. Because adult learners need experience and activity in order to make it stick. They are not children. PowerPoint that you just read off of works well for someone like my five-year-old. Because he doesn't know how to read the hell does he know it's visuals right he's gonna look at it all day but you're not five and by the way i'm actually demeaning you when i throw a bunch of powerpoints at you forget the indoctrination thing i mean yes i agree with you it's probably operating at that level too it's it's ridiculous but that 19 year old they put in front of you doesn't know what the hell they're doing they're doing something that somebody else told them to do that person needs to be in the room get rid of the powerpoint i'll give you a perfect example this amazon Jeff Bezos, like three or four years before he quit that company that he built, um, he banned all PowerPoint with the engineers in high-level meetings 
Because he's like, you got to come in and you got to talk off the top of your head about whatever the hell you're building. And if you don't know it that well, shut up and bring a junior who does. Yep. Because people hide behind PowerPoint. It's not, no, it, I, I push back on it. It is not a training tool. It is, no. it is nonsense. Let me, let, so let me clarify. So I believe, yeah, that, <laughs> I, I believe that it is a training tool because it, it, it's to act as a guide. But I also agree with you in regards to if you're a subject matter expert, yeah. In turn, and regardless of what it is, whether again, if, if it's leadership, if it's 240 machine gun, if it's self, you know, if it's, you know, first aid, if it's a copy machine, what yeah. have you, if you can't articulate and discuss and have an open discourse again, off the top of your head, because you know it outside of reading off the PowerPoint, then you don't know Jack about the particular topic. Correct. You shouldn't be training it. Right. You shouldn't be teaching anybody about it until you learn about it yourself. Right. You know, yeah, that's why the 19-year-old in, in front of you all doesn't make any sense. You put a guy like me in front of you all, and I go, number one, we're not using the PowerPoint. I mean, good morning, everybody. hope you all brought coffee because we're not using the PowerPoint today. We're going to sit in a circle. <laughs> I know you all going to love that. We're going to sit in a circle, <laughs> and you're going to open your mouth, and you're going to open your mouth, and you're going to open your mouth, and I get paid because it's government contract if you, if you sit here quiet for eight hours, and I need you to talk about what happened. I need you to talk about leadership experiences. I need you to talk about leadership experiences. Then we're going to put them all in a pile. And we're going to create a simulation live in person, right? And we are going to run this now. And then after lunch, because that's going to take all afternoon, because I know how much time it takes to pull stuff out of adults, we're going to run outside and we're going to run a course. Matter of fact, I'm going to see how fast you all can run. And by the way, I got a bad ankle, so, and I'm a civilian, so let's see how fast you all can run. Come on, let's hump it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's how you do it. You have to respect your audience. And I get the sense, and I get the sense, by the way, that the NCOs that were that were training hack, even though the things they were having those young soldiers do, like hack and all of the other folks who were in trust, even though those things seemed menial, menial, they actually were examples of how to build trust through seemingly yes. menial things, seemingly mm -hmm. menial acts, right? And I think there's a, well, there's been failures, of, there's failures of trust all up and down our culture now. Like, we don't trust anybody. We don't trust anyone in authority. We don't believe anyone in authority. Um, we are our own authority, right? We can because we've got Google, so how smart could you be? You know, like, well, I mean, you started seeing this probably about 10, 15 years ago, where kids in school are Googling their teachers and then saying, yeah, that's not what Google says, you're an idiot. So there's failures of trust all up and down the line. Sure. And how can you have good training if there's no trust? By leading by example. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, if you look at Hackworth in regards to when he was in Italy, uh, you know, he had a sergeant named Steve Prezenka, where S Sergeant Prezenka, you know, he showed these kids and discipline by doing it himself. He was there in the trenches with them. He was down mm -hmm. on his hands and knees cleaning those floors with a toothbrush right. with all the other corporals and PFCs, even though he didn't have to do it, he did it. And that is probably the best example in terms, in my mind, is that if you're going to tell somebody to do something, do it with them. Right. Okay. Does rank have its privileges? Sure it does, but you're going to get a much larger following and you're going to get a lot more respect and you're going to have people looking up to you. If you're sitting there knee deep in a, in a trench full of mud and muck and God knows what else standing right next to the, to the kid that you ordered to be there, they're going to look at you and they're going to go, Hey, he's one of us. Awesome. I can go to him with anything. Now, is there a division in terms of, you know, uh, 
in a relationship as an NCO, absolutely. You know, there are certain things that you can't say to your subordinates. However, if they see you out there doing it the same way that you're beating it into them, they're going to be a lot more receptive to it. You know, and in my particular case, I was older than most of my minions when I was training them, you know, by a good eight to 10 years. And I was still out there. I was hauling a machine gun. I was running with a full pack, full armor, what have you. And I'm be screaming at him. Let's go. Sergeant Prezenka was the same way, because if you remember, he was a World War II vet, crusty as hell. And here, you know, comes Hackworth at what, 17? And he's looking at, at Prezenka and calling him the old man, even though I think Prezenka was probably like 28, 29 at that particular point. But right. he's, he's running Hackworth into the ground. You know, you've got this thoroughbred American boy who's healthy, who's physically strong who can, you know, climb up a mountain if you told him to, and he's out there hauling ass with him just because he can. That's the yeah. mark of a good leader. I will never tell anybody who serves under me to do something that I'm not willing to do for them. I'm going to go a little deep in the weeds here, and then we'll get back to the book, but I'm going to go a little deep in the weeds. I'm going to lead you into the weeds a little bit because something occurs to me as you're saying this. Um, as our culture work culture, I'll, I'll frame it work culture. As our work culture has become more white collar in the civilian world, there's been less of a call for the blue collar attributes you've just described. Things like being able to physically pick up a, what, 70 pound pack and hump it 20 miles. There's less of a call for that. Um, there's less of a call for the mentality of, Okay, careful how I put this because I have a lot of women who listen to the podcast. But it's it is it is a it's a less of a call for masculine strength now than there has been in the past. Now that's not saying that those calls still don't exist. I mean, look, the guys who get up at four o'clock in the morning, actually, and, and not even four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, and pick up my garbage, and it is guys. It ain't women on the back of those garbage trucks, even though garbage trucks are high tech now and they have robotic arms and you get the heck of a lot less dirty. It's still guys making $95,000 a year because they're getting up at three o'clock in the morning to keep your lights on and to pick up your garbage and to um, when it sucks and there's weather in Chicago or, you know, here, <laughs> you know, when it's snowing, it ain't women out there getting down in the hole, making sure that the electricity stays on. It ain't women. Sorry, it's just not. So there is still a call for that sort of masculine strength. There's a, there's a way of connecting that men connect with each other. And you, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about Sebastian Younger um, and about his, um, his book War and the other books that he's written, Perfect Storm and Fire and, and all these other kinds of books, right? Where going in and doing the masculine experience is the thing. Uh, we saw, I saw this in rugby, <laughs> the guys who could hump it and the guys who couldn't, right? And the guys who couldn't, both in my experience with you and then later experiences that I had with rugby, the guys who couldn't were the guys who quit. Cause like, oh, you know, I scraped my knee or, oh, I turned my ankle or whatever. And you're like, okay, well, bye. I don't know, <laughs> you know, and I'm seeing it in jujitsu now. Like I've been doing jujitsu for about a year, year and a half or so. And there are people who come in and I have a martial arts background anyway. So like, this is not new to me, but like there are people who come in and they're like, oh, this is really hard. I need to be really fit. And they never come back. They just sure. don't, they fail <clears throat> in 10 seconds. And then there's people like me who are just like that. The first time I rolled in jujitsu, <laughs> the first time I rolled, I sat down after like a good 
like three minutes. I did. I lasted one three minute round. I was gassed. I'm 43. I was gassed. And I sat down and I went, okay, that's the game. Got check. <laughs> and it, it just locked in at that point because the mentality that goes along with that masculine ability to do the hard things. I don't think exists at scale anymore. This is where it goes back to the white collar piece. I don't think that exists at scale anymore in a white collar world where everything's easy, at least in America anyway. Um, <sighs> nothing beats experience, whether you're selling a copier or like I said, making an Instagram post, right? Or humping a pack, nothing beats experience. How do people get that experience? And then how do we, and the sub-question there is, how do we put more of that sort of masculine perspective or masculine energy back into training in places that, that where the feminine energy is very strong? Because it is. I mean, it is in white-collar places. It, it very much is. And this is not, a, by the way, this is not an outside-the-bounds observation. Other people than me have said this, too. I'm not going to get in trouble on my own podcast, or if I am, it Sorry. doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, uh, I think it comes back to what we were we were talking about in you know in 46 in Italy with uh, trust company is that it comes back to the little things, mm -hmm. and it really does. You know, it's like you look at corporate America these days, and you have your personal assistant. You make damn sure that they get you your your white grande mocha latte with freaking coconut sprinkles and bullshit. Um, you make sure that they know that. You know, those are the little details. But it can transition to so many other things in terms of making your bed in the morning, you know, finding time to read a book. You know, it's the little things. And if you're demanding so much from your subordinates, do you do them yourself? Mm -hmm. You know, and some people will say things of like, well, you know, I'm the I'm the CEO of the company. I don't have to do that. Yeah, you're right. You don't. But you should mm -hmm. because it shows everybody underneath you, you know, that you're just like them. You know, you look at uh, look at Bon Jovi. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great musician. What have you? Everybody's listened to Slippery When Wet, you know, and have has seen Young Guns too enough to where those songs are burned in their skull. But he also in his restaurants he'll go back and he'll work in the scullery cleaning dishes mm -hmm. because he wants people to know that he's not above doing it. And right. if you look at a lot of the of if you look at a lot of really good NCOs, um, you know, they're the ones that are in there too. You know, the military for a while would do crap like, uh, oh, hey, it's Christmas. And so, you know, the general's going to put on an apron and he's going to serve you a turkey dinner. Nobody cares. Right. But you know what they do care about is when you're coming off of a patrol and everybody's hungry and you haven't had a hot meal in two and a half, three days. And your NCOs are saying, hey, you go ahead before us. Right. Okay. You know, yeah, rank has his privileges. I easily could walk to the head of the line, grab myself the first hot thing that I see and stuff it in my face. I want my kids taken care of. Right. And when they see that, that's something that is burned into their skull. Like, well, hey, Sergeant St. John did this. You know, I'm going to keep that in my back pocket. So when I'm in his position, I will remember that mm -hmm. because that's how you build that trust with your subordinates and your minions is that you show them that I can go without for a little bit to make sure that you have it. And that comes back to training too. You know, I want you to be to be geared up on this kind of stuff. So I will go through second, and I want to learn from you. You know, the best way to learn, or I should say, the best. Yeah, no, let me back up. The best way to learn, in my opinion, is by teaching somebody else. Right. And in order to teach somebody, you have to know what the hell you're talking about. Now, again, I go back to that CEO. You know, if you expect me to to know everything about logistics, you better be able to teach me about it. I mean, it's your company, right? Right.
Right. Or at the very minimum, and this is where, this is the very minimum, and this is how I kind of run things around here with my company, at the very minimum, if I don't know about it, I know enough to ask good questions to know I don't know about it. And then guess what? I hire somebody who knows more about it than I do, and then I shut my mouth and listen to them. Yep. Because I don't know it. And there's clearly things here that I need to know. So please, somebody here, teach me something that I need to know. Because <laughs> I, I, I don't know it. I don't know the right questions to ask. Or I knew maybe five of the right questions when in reality, there's a whole bucket of like 15 right questions you should be asking. And I only got to a third of them. Well, sure. And I, I think another <clears throat> part that comes into that that people need to be careful of is that, you know, you said, if I don't know something, I'll find out the answer or I'll hire somebody who's a specialist in this particular field. Great. Let them run that. I think that the problem, and I ran into this a lot in the military, is that I'd have people micromanaging the hell out of me. Right. right. I would sit there and I'd look at my senior NCOs, and in one case, a captain, and I went, do you want to do this? Yeah. Do you know how to do this? No? Shut the hell up and get out of my AO. <laughs> I have things to do, and all you're doing is making me nervous because I don't know why you're here. And everything right. that comes out of my mouth, you countermand it because you went to the war college. Or you went to West Point. Hey, guess what? That's really good on your on your personnel jacket. Out here, it doesn't mean dick. Yeah. So you just sit in that. You sit in that Matt V inside your armor. You can pay attention. You can learn. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah. We went maybe off in the weeds pretty good there. It's okay. It's fine. I, I I jogged you off into the weeds. It's fine. And maybe it's not masculine energy. Maybe it's more like a masculine mindset because women can have this energy too. Oh, 100%. Um, you know, and I, again, I want to be very clear. I'm not taking away anything from that, but what I'm, what I am, not, but what I am doing is saying the opportunities for finding those moments of where the hard work is. And usually it's physical work, but where the hard work is like if you're a Bon Jovi washing dishes, that's physical work. I don't care how many different ways you cut it. I've washed dishes before. I don't think that the technology's changed like in the last 20 years since I haven't, you know, washed a dish in the back of a restaurant. I think it's probably still the same. <laughs> it's pretty similar. It's hot and it's a lot of stainless steel. It's hot. It's stainless steel. There's a lot of detergent. You come out and your hands are ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. Pretty much the same. Okay. Um, that's physical labor. And there's something about and psychologists have, have explored this over the course of many years, but they haven't really landed on an answer yet. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure our common, our common friend, David Baumrocker, I'm sure he could tell us. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Sure, sure he would tell us, but there's a link between the psychology of, not the psychology, the mindset psychology of being willing to do that work and the work itself. And I don't know where that link is. I'm not sophisticated enough. Um, I'm still learning about that. But I'm sure there's a link between those two things. And I, I fundamentally believe that that's what training is for on the top end. But I also believe that fundamentally that's what makes people better at life. That's what makes people better at existence is – and I'm not diminishing being behind a computer and being a computer programmer. Don't get me wrong. But getting out from behind the computer – um, getting out into the physical world, engaging with that, um, doing the physical labor, uh, training in a physical way um, to make yourself better, even if it's in something that's totally the opposite of whatever the hell you normally do. So, like, if you're a computer programmer, take up carpentry. You may suck at hammering a nail, but take up carpentry. That but you're going to build a house, but take but up But you're going to learn. But you'll learn something. You're going to learn. Absolutely. You know, and uh, I think I'll counter Or gardening. That. I don't know. <laughs> sure. 
Um, I, I think I'll counterman that just a little bit in regards that I don't necessarily think it needs to be physical. Okay. It can just it can just be something that's outside of the norm of what you're no, what you normally do, um, or what the status quo is for somebody of your rank, if you will. And I think uh, one of the best examples that comes to mind is when I was in Afghanistan. Um, believe it or not, I ended up doing a personal security detail for none other than Vince McMahon from the WWE. Now, here's a guy at that time who was worth half a billion dollars mm -hmm. that he flew out to this remote fob out in Western Afghanistan. He easily could have stayed in Kandahar mm -hmm. where there's 70,000 people and plenty of individuals to keep him safe with the USO tours. He decided to charter a helicopter on his own because the military wouldn't fly into Shindan. And he took a couple of people, no security detail, and he just showed up. So... I get called over and I see this individual and I go, are you, you, you're, you're Vince McMahon. He said, yeah. I'm like, what are you doing here? Where's your security detail? He goes, I don't have one. And they wouldn't let me come. So I just said, screw it. I'm coming anyway. This guy for a week stayed with us. He ate bologna and cheese sandwiches and drank Turkish Cokes and had the occasional MRE. He slept on a cot that was about a foot too short for him. I never heard this guy complain once. And I was with him for about seven days. He, I never heard him say a bad word about anything. And here's a guy who also took the time sitting in the hot sun for 14, 16 hours a day. He talked to everybody on base, whether it was a contractor, whether it was the army dudes, whether it was the handful of Marines that we had there with us, the TCNs who were sitting there cooking our food or doing our laundry. He talked to anybody. He would give them a half hour of his time, you know, unequivocally. You know, if you came up to ask him something, he'd say, I'm in the middle of something. Please come back and find me later. Did he have to do that? Absolutely not. But he did. He went outside of what was expected of him. And I does that make him a good leader? I think it makes him a hell of a good person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because I know that if I had a half a billion dollars, uh, if I'm being serious, I, the last place I'd be going to be frigging Afghanistan. <laughs> Are you kidding me? But he did that. And, and yeah. the, the morale boost that it gave to my guys, because we hadn't seen an American outside of a, somebody wearing a uniform in 10 months. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he shows up and he's talking to everybody. I mean, we talked about fishing back in Northern Minnesota. It was just, it was surreal. Hmm. It was a conversation I never expected to have. And my, my opinion of him went through the absolute roof because again, you know, I look at the other USO tours that were coming to the other various bases when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, that they had, you know, 30 man strong security element for one person. You know, he hmm. literally went and, and bought a helicopter and flew out to us because the military wouldn't give him air transport. He's like, hmm. all right, I'm going anyway. Screw you. Right. Right. So yeah. and that's that's so outside of the norm. You know, I think if more people did things like that, and I'm not saying that, you know, whatever CEO or middle manager who's listening to this has got to fly to a war zone to kind of get some cred, you know, go do something that's good for your community. You know, go do something that doesn't benefit you. You know? Yep, and I think that'll go a hell of a long way. Yeah, I think that uh, <clears throat> there are plenty of people who listen to my podcast who do those things on the regular. I mean, they give out turkeys, you know, to their community, um, and they actually like do the turkey distribution um, when there is a disaster in the community. Um, they show up. I know I've seen them. Um, they show up. Um, those kinds of acts for most middle managers, as you put it, um, have to be localized. Um, and, and there's plenty of opportunities. I mean, my God, there's no, there's no dearth of opportunities. There's plenty of opportunities everywhere to go out get your hands dirty, um, get engaged with the community. Um, you know, and if you're wondering as you're listening to this, okay, well, that sounds interesting for those two guys, whatever. Okay. 
well, you can maybe take that approach. Um, but, you know, I know you're burned out when you get home. But there's no better cure for burnout than helping somebody else who can do nothing for you. Who can do absolutely nothing for you. Who isn't even in the same maybe socioeconomic uh, 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 rank or status or level that you are at. And so, um, you know, I think people do understand this. And I think people do it quietly. But it always does bear speaking about out loud. Um, and you know, Hey, just watch one less network, one less Netflix show, just one less Netflix show an hour. You'll get there. You'll get there. So many things in there about training, so many rabbit holes to run down, but back to the book, back to about face, (laughs) by the way, the edition that we have is published by touchstone, Simon and Schuster. We are not covering the whole book. We cannot possibly cover the whole book. It is gigantic. Um, It was a military book club main selection um, back in the day. And uh, the original edition that we have was published in 1989. Uh, Again, covers everything that Hackworth ever did. It is a a condensed, not even a condensed, it is an unabridged memoir. the version that Jocko, Jocko Willick, which we already mentioned previously on the podcast, uh, the version that he, the, re, the republished edition, basically, that he wrote uh, a new introduction for, you can also get on audiobook. So if you're not a reader, if you want to listen to it in your car, um, you want to listen to it while you're exercising, or you want to listen to it while you're volunteering in your community, um, you can go get it on audiobook on all the major audiobook platforms where you like to listen to audiobooks. All right, back to the book. Back to About Face by Colonel David H. Hackworth. And I quote a couple different pieces here. They're going to be a little bit long. Um, this is when he's in Korea. So he's left training, and he's in Korea. Um, he's getting into the, the the mess, as it were, the, uh, <laughs> the suck. Um, and his first fight had been his first screw-up. And he says, I didn't know until much later that you generally don't walk away from that one. And so now we're getting into the nonsense. We're getting into we're getting into fighting the North Koreans and the Chinese. A few days later, five of us had been on reconnaissance patrol. It was a black night, save for the U.S. flares that hung eerily over the battlefield. Very quiet, but for the occasional whine of artillery fire and the odd burst of an automatic weapon. We had moved about a mile into enemy territory when we heard motors. Leaving the patrol, I crawled to a mound near the end of the road for a first-hand look. Through the darkness, silhouetted by the artillery flares, I could see four enemy vehicles. A file of infantry was walking on each side of the motor column, with more infantry walking in front. They were so close that I was sure only the vehicle's engines prevented them from hearing my pounding heart. They passed by. I was about to return to the patrol when I saw a lone North Korean soldier, his weapons slung, tracing a telephone wire. As he passed my position, I parted his hair with a submachine gun magazine and dragged him back to the patrol. Daylight wasn't far off when we headed home. Progress was slow. Initially, we had to pack our zonked-out prize. Later, he awoke and stumbled along belligerently, but at least under his own steam. Just when we thought we had made it, we ran into a large enemy force moving down the road in formation. They were jabbering excitedly and dragging machine guns behind them on squeaky wheels. We were about six yards from the road. I lay on top of the prisoner, covering his mouth with my hand and pressed my trench knife hard against his throat. I thought the cold steel would be enough to convince him to be good, but it wasn't. Old habits die hard. 
He started squirming around. My hand was muffling his cries to his comrades when he tried to bite him. I had no choice. I slit his throat and lay there on top of him for what seemed like a bloody eternity until the road was clear and we got hot-footed back to the U.S. lines. I hadn't wanted to kill him. I would have rather have captured the guy. A live prisoner is worth a thousand dead hombres, but I was probably as scared as he was, and in a millionth of a second, I'd had to decide, and it was either him or my patrol. Killing that guy and one other incident probably hammered home most that Korea was not some training maneuver, that I was really in war, boots and all. The other occurred when we were digging in on a small knob overlooking a main north-south road. Digging in was a task a frontline trooper performed at least once a day when on the move. Usually you spent the time cursing your commander for always choosing the hardest ground in town and then moving the line when you'd finished your hole. Some of us thought it was an army plot to keep us in shape. For myself, I'd rather have done a million push-ups. But on this particular occasion, we'd gotten some great dirt. It was soft and loose, a breeze to dig, and I was about two feet down in no time. Then my shovel hit something mushy. A few quick scrapes revealed an olive drab green material. A few more uncovered the decaying corpse of a man with bright red hair and a 24th Division patch on his moldy fatigue jacket. The soldier's hands had been tied behind him with communication, comma, wire, and he'd been shot in the back of the head. Three more bodies were found by other troopers on our little knob and all killed and buried in the same way. The company was notified. They said the men probably had been killed at the beginning of the war. That was when the 24th Division, the 25th Sister Division from the pre-World War II Hawaii days, had fought along this road. We were instructed to dig out the dog tags and provide eight-digit coordinates where each body was found. The atrocity did little for morale, but a lot for fighting spirit. There would be no love lost for an enemy as savage as the North Korean Reds. So much for the Korean police action. I and my friends all fought. This was all-out war. No quarter given. Then another section, a little bit later. Many things happen. He runs into a guy named Captain McKaylee. I'm going to draw a parallel between these two sections that I'm reading here in just a moment to pick up from about face. We continued fighting a delaying action south through the Chorwan Valley until we received the welcome word that we were going into reserve. Instantly, high spirits charged bone-tired feet. The only news that could have been better would be the word that the war was over. All of us looked forward to a few days off to sleep, to take hot showers, sing, and drink booze. In reserve, we'd pay $100 for a bottle of shit whiskey, 10 bucks for a can of beer, and whatever the price was going for that great 190-proof alcohol. <laughs> the docs got it through their black market medical outlets, which, even mixed with pineapple juice, was so powerful that it made the insides of our canteen cups look like they'd been chromed. <sighs> then we'd sit around fires and get drunk, and then we'd talk about the war. Reserve gave us a chance not just to unwind, but also to examine a fight. It would be like putting a jigsaw puzzle together with each guy fitting in his piece. I was here, and there was a chink machine gun there, one man might say, and then another voice would add, yeah, and I saw Mitchell blow it away with a grenade just as he got drilled. Finally, we'd get the general story, and by dividing it in half to account for all the fantasy and exaggeration, we'd pretty much have a factual account. 
The problem was that in the middle of a firefight, you only see what's going on in front of you and maybe what's happening directly to your right and left. You can't get to the big picture, so you never really know what happened. But you want to, you need to, to account for friends dead and wounded, to find out what you did wrong so it doesn't happen again, and to give credit where credit is due. Because in reserve, we'd also talk about the Gilcrests, the Devores, and the Aguadas. Reserve was where the heroes were recognized and legends were born and nurtured. It's also a time when award recommendations would be submitted. Normally, company would call and ask for recommendations. We'd scratch them out in a crude fashion on sea ration boxes, cardboard from ammo cartons, or whatever writing material we could scrounge. Hey, brother, how do you spell machine gun? We'd ask one another. There were few Hemingways at platoon level. We were just a bunch of dumb shits trying to articulate a comrade's courage, as in the case of Aguada. All the old 3rd Battalion uh, guys wanted him to get the Blue Max, the Medal of Honor. This was most unusual given that he was in another platoon, but we wrote it up as best we could. Quote, We recommend PFC James Aguada for the Medal of Honor. James Aguada was a brave soldier. He shot a lot of gooks and saved our ass up on Logan. Aguada was a good man. He deserves the big one. Unquote. This recommendation went back to the rear to a very literate captain, sitting in a nice warm tent at regimental awards and decorations, who determined who got what by reading our statements. With Aguadas, he probably said, so what? He shot a lot of gooks, quote-unquote. Well, that's what we're here for. He was a brave soldier. Well, we're all brave soldiers. So James Aguada got a silver medal posthumously, and not the Medal of Honor he deserved. A silver star is a damned high decoration, but it's not the Blue Max. It's not even a distinguished service cross. Aguada's bravery, which to our minds saved the platoon, perhaps our whole company went unrecognized only because we didn't know how to say it. Infantrymen were fighters, not writers. In one way, we prided ourselves on it. We didn't have time for such quote-unquote pussy stuff. But the fact was that infantrymen in Korea came as a rule from the bottom rung of the social and economic ladder. The squads were made up mainly of poor whites, blacks, and yellows, a dispensable rainbow, uneducated, with nothing to keep us a step ahead of the point of a bayonet. And if a doefoot got killed, his parents generally didn't have the education to write and ask why. They'd silently, stoically wear their loss like a sad badge of honor. In Korea, a heroic dead comrade in arms. At home, a gold star in a cracked window. In the little house, on the wrong side of the tracks. <sighs> um, I read both of those passages together because there's a line that links both of those ideas. First off, killing a man and understanding that, oh, now we're actually in the game and now this is serious. And then the idea of being from the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder and not really understanding the value of being able to explain what you do. Um, my father was in Vietnam, and um, he had a lot of experiences in Vietnam, many of which I never heard about. Um, and like many men of his generation who were born in northern Kentucky slash southern Ohio, uh, as a black man coming out of that area in that period of time in the 1950s, a generation later, he would be part of the hmm, machine that Vietnam chewed up. The machine that Hackworth looked at and said, 
what the heck are we doing? The machine that McNamara said, hey, let's just throw more bodies at because surely that will solve the problem. The machine of illiterate brown and yellow and, and white, poor white, let's be clear, um, people who have, quite frankly, in America, at least in the 20th century, fought and died in our wars. But Hackworth figured it out. He figured it out from the, and he wasn't well-educated himself, but he figured it out from the point of like being able to kill somebody and being able to make that decision in, as he said, in the millionth of a second, all the way to, oh, wait, we actually have to figure out how to write this up so that the right people read it in the right kind of way so that this person gets what they deserve because the person who deserves this thing doesn't actually know how to describe what they did. They just did it. There's two pieces to leading and and in business leadership, just like in leadership on the battleground, it's not just enough to do a good job and show up. And we talked a little bit about that in our last little jog. It's not just enough to do a good job and show up. You also have to be able to talk about it. <sighs> RJ can talk about what he does and what he did, but it's really hard to talk about that in terms that other people understand. How can leaders, here's the question, how can leaders, RJ, articulate what it is that they do in the millionth of a second when they have to take a life for people who aren't there and will judge them later, who are in the hierarchy, who are far away from the work, who may have forgotten even what it's like to get their hands dirty? <clears throat> That's a good question. Um, and you're and you're a poet, by the way. And by the way, Jocko is an English literature major. Like all of the people who actually like are warriors, and you'll note this in history too. Miyamoto Musashi, warriors and poets. There's something that goes weirdly that goes along with writing and being able to kill a man. <laughs> and I don't know where those dist where those are where, where that where that line is, but it's it, there's a line there. There's a through line in being able to do the thing and then explain the thing in a descriptive way to others who weren't there. How do you how do you draw that line if you're a leader? Um, I think I think a lot of it is just an understanding of that particular situation. Uh, and Hackworth put it pretty, pretty clearly in regards and when they were doing their AARs, which is your after action report and trying to get everybody's input. And then again, cutting it in half because that's going to be much more accurate. Um, not embellishing, actually having the wherewithal to tell the truth about what occurred during a particular situation, uh, whether it's in combat or whether it's, you know, there was a, someone took all the creamer in the break room and you didn't want to replace it. And yet you're trying to blame the janitor because, you know, he decided to, you know, overdo it in his coffee, you know, taking that responsibility and actually being able to stick to your word and stick to your story. Um, I've seen a lot both in the military and also in the civilian world of individuals that are placed in a situation where they have to describe an incident, whether it's good or it's bad. And depending on who they're speaking with, they tend to embellish or downplay depending on what they feel the outcome is going to be. You know, if they feel that there's going to be some disciplinary action, you know, they try to downplay it as much as possible. If they feel that there's going to be a good cookie at the end of the at the end of it, they're going to, oh shit, no, I did that. I did all of that. I did it all by myself with one hand tied behind my back and my, you know, and my pants down. It's it, it's 
really about honesty. And I think that having, uh, you know, you referenced the Moyomaru Musashi, you know, he had the honor at, at, to be able to put that into words. Um, you know, Hackworth had the same thing. He had the honor to tell a fairly straightforward story. And if you read into this book and all of it, you will realize that he's telling the truth because he routinely references how badly he screws up and the punishments that he gets routinely, whether he's getting yelled at, you know, by somebody who's just above him or a four-star general, you know, even as a lieutenant colonel, when you're getting screamed at by, you know, a general in the Pentagon, why, man, you screwed up. But he took it and he learned from it. Um, and what I found fascinating about some of his excerpts in here was the fact that he fully admitted that he was human. You know, I make mistakes. Um, I have to live with a lot of those mistakes. In his particular situation, uh, some of those mistakes cost people their lives. And it's things that he never forgot any of them. He writes about them frequently. Um, but those other mistakes that he <laughs> that he did to try to better the lives of his of the people underneath him, you know, those are the ones that I found the most amusing because I did a lot of that stuff when I was in the military, too. You know, I went out of my way to I wouldn't say plunder. But I definitely uh, uh, acquired a lot of things that didn't belong to me for the benefit for the benefit of, you know, the people that were immediately around me. Um, we're annexing I, this Jeep and we're going to repaint it and uh, y'all be quiet. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, and, and, and it's stuff like that, that when he got hemmed up, which he did when they finally got when they finally got it, he easily could have been like, you know, that was, you know, Sergeant Pearson's, you know, that was his fault. No, no, no. He took it. He took it and he goes, no, no, that was me. I authorized it. You know, and he took whatever punishment was meted out to him and which we look at, too, later on, hampered his career for for parts of it because he was honest about it. You know, he got a bad EPR, which is an enlisted performance report, I think, when he was in. I can't remember if it was in, I think it was when he was in Korea that affected his career all the way up until almost Vietnam Yep. because somebody, you know, said, uh, you know, he's uh, immature. Well, yeah, but you're going off of actions that happened 10 years ago. You think I haven't grown? Yeah. Well, I mean, he was 19. Like there's, well, but you know, when I read that, I was like, yeah, I guess, you know what? I guess the fact that there's no forgiveness in the machine isn't new to social media. That's the first thing my brain went to. Like, sure. Oh, okay. I guess old tweets being resurfaced. I guess I guess your permanent record was a real thing when you were a kid. <laughs> you probably should have paid closer attention to that idea. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, I don't want to get into all the vagaries of killing somebody. I don't want to get into that. I, I kind of take the Clint Eastwood um, approach from the un, from Unforgiven. When you when you kill a man, you take away everything he has and everything he's ever going to have, and that's enough to say about that. The decision, though, that millionth of a second moment, right? Whether it's either me or the patrol, right? And I, I can't save this person. And by the way, I don't know this person. I've never met this person. I'm sure this person has a family. I'm sure this person was somebody's son or brother or uncle or cousin or whatever. And this is where people in business sometimes use military language. Um, like the founder of 37 Signals is opposed to the use of all of this military language and and, and probably would be opposed to this podcast too, uh, podcast episode too, because business is not war from his perspective. And yet at the same time, well, I'm just, 
he he describes himself as a business pacifist. <laughs> yeah, well, I, the only thing I'm going to say to that is golf, foxtrot, Yankee. He can read <laughs> into that what he wants to. <laughs> yeah, well, he's in Chicago, um, so you can go find him. He's he's, he's somewhere in that city. <laughs> you can have a conversation with him. Um, and again, I think that I think that that perspective of his. And it's weird because you have two different lines in business, right? In business conversation and business talk. So you do have the line of the Silicon Valley, and this is what he's opposed to, quite frankly. I mean, I understand his perspective from this point. You have the Silicon Valley, I've never been in a fight in my life, pencil neck, you know, individuals who are using war language with other people's money. For sure, that's annoying. Don't get, I, even I'm opposed to that. I'm like, give me a break. Stop, right? But then the other track you have is people who haven't had those kinds of experiences in other parts that are not Silicon Valley utilizing that language to motivate people, right? Because there's something primal that comes out of that, out of that language, right? We're going to kill our competitors. We're going to destroy their businesses. We're going to... Uh, we're going to battle our customers, right? And this is, and, and Freed, to his, not to his credit, Freed mixes all this language together and it just says, no, I'm opposed to all of it. Stop using all of it. Without the nuance that's required to understand or to make a clearer statement that says, hey, all you Silicon Valley nutcases who've never marched a post in your life, shut up. That's a more accurate statement. Versus everybody else who's trying to use the language of battle or the language of killing to get to something deeper and primal, to pull something as a motivator out of their people, to get them interested in moving forward on an initiative. This is the challenge, not the challenge, this is the dichotomy of marketing versus reality. And marketers ruin everything. I'm a marketer. Marketers ruin everything. <laughs> they just do. <laughs> um, but this also gets back to that idea of marketing war, right? Marketing um, marketing a, a war experience, which is, quite frankly, Hackwork is really good at that. I mean, don't get me wrong. When he got on his show, not in his show, I've watched the interview that he did on C-SPAN years ago before he before he died, years after he did the initial show after World War, or not World War, sorry, after Vietnam, where he kind of called out everybody, right? And he understands what he's doing. I mean, he's he's working the camera just as good as any actor would. He's working the and I see it. I see him working the camera. I see him pausing in certain places. I see him doing certain things with his eyes and his face. He's media savvy. He knows exactly what he's doing. How should leaders in business? No, not how should. I'm going to ask you as a even more direct question than that. Should leaders in business be using war metaphors, particularly around a guy like you or other people who've actually done the act of taking someone's life? Like... Or is that language we should just abandon and find some other language because we just don't have the experience to uh, to give that language meaning beyond just surface marketing? Well, <clears throat> I guess if you start banning words, there's a whole bunch of other words that I would definitely put forward first, such as individuals that are saying like every four seconds. I just want to slap them in the mouth and send them back to grammar school. Right. Drives me absolutely insane. But to well, we're gonna like uh, get back to the book here after we uh, like. Uh, finish. <laughs> I'm gonna ch 
I'm going to reach through this. Can- I'm going to, I'm going to get you. He's coming so, for me. He's coming for me, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, to answer your question, uh, do I think you have to change the vernacular? Not necessarily. However, I do believe that you have to have an understanding of it. You know, when you look at words like kill, maim, destroy, you know, they're part of our lexicon and it doesn't necessarily have to do with business. I mean, you know, if you uh, have an infestation at the house of rats, I want to kill those little guys. Oh, yeah, I'm to. going to war. I'm going to war right. with rats. Right, 100%. So how is that any different than, you know, uh, going to war with your local newspaper, you know, if you're selling papers yourself? You can use that vernacular as long as you use it uh, properly and constructively. Um, I think that you would have a much harder time dealing with those individuals in middle management or even in upper management that uh, start allowing the war stories to get to their head in terms of, uh, you know, I did this, I did that. When you were so far removed from it, you couldn't tell me a single individual who was actually in that particular situation. Mm-hmm. Um don't change the vernacular. I think that's a huge problem that we have these days is that we're trying to find user-friendly words that make everybody happy. Hey, guess what? That's not how it works. That's not how life works. Right. Okay. You're going to say things is going to piss somebody off. Even me, you know, Um, and you just have to learn to be an adult about it. And you have to understand that you're going to hear words and phrases that you might not agree with, but you can't lose your mind every time that somebody says something that doesn't agree with your particular parameters. So when it comes to language such as, you know, and especially for marketing, you know, we're going to do battle with Nike and sell a better shoe. I don't care because if I'm worried about what kind of vernacular that you're throwing out there to try to sell your shoe saying that, oh, battle triggers me because, you know, I fought in several engagements overseas. What's that do for me? And what's that say about me as a person? That, that to me shows that uh, if I allow a word such as battle, war, combat, whatever, get into my psyche, that something's already damaged inside of me to begin with, I need to go talk to somebody because I can't function in the normal world, much less run a company or even like a, a section within a company if I'm, if I'm worried about what somebody's going to say to me. Because how am I supposed to constructively articulate an issue that I'm having if there are certain words that I can't use because I'm afraid that, you know, Joe Schmo, who we hired two weeks ago, might lose his mind, go get a lawyer and sue the company. That's no way to run your life. Sorry, I disagree. There's no way to run a company anyway. At the very minimum. <laughs> yeah, right. So un- un- unfortunately, though, you know, we've gotten to this place in society where, you know, kind of like Hackworth, when he was calling people out for the absolute disaster in Nam, um, people don't want to take that responsibility. And so they're going to shovel it down as far as they can to the lower rungs. And well, you use that term grown up. And you're not you're the probably about the fourth person this week. Let's use that term. Not with me, not directly at me. I'm fine. But in the context of like other things, well, you know, right? I'm fine. I'm a, gr- I'm, trust me, I'm a grown up. <laughs> I got a corner on that. It's fine. I got a house on the block and we're good. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I'm hearing this term being thrown around more. Um, or maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just, it, it's like when you buy a yellow Maserati, you see yellow Maseratis everywhere. All of sure. a sudden, oh my God, everybody's got yellow Maserati. No, it's just, you've got one now. So maybe there's something going on in my head this week um, about what does it mean to be a grown up? But I'm hearing this term more and more. And I think it's because there's a failure, not a failure. Yeah, no, no, no. that's the right word. Failure. No, there's, there's a failure of the grown-ups in the room to control the kids at a cultural level. And I think part of this may be psychologically, 
um, and maybe I'm going to use a broader term here, not religious in a religious sense, but spiritually, I think, flowing through the ether right now with the death of Queen Elizabeth. Because um, that woman, and I don't care about the royal family, I care less about those people. Uh, they produce nothing, go away. Um, but, um, and I don't ever want to hear about you, any of you again. Meghan Markle, I'm looking at you. Never again do I want to hear from you ever again. You're done. <laughs> go away. But she won't. She'll be around for 10,000 years now. Um, Queen Elizabeth II, no matter what you may say about the royal family and them not producing anything, no matter what I may think, she was a grown-up. She was a grown-up in the old-school sense of the word. Honor, respect, stiff upper lip, took herself seriously but not too seriously, knew yep. the boundaries, demanded respect. I mean, for God's sakes, Donald Trump respected that woman. That's amazing. I mean, this is a guy who Justin Trudeau tried to shake his hand and he literally laughed in his face. <laughs> uh, Angela Merkel, he had no, Donald Trump had no love for Angela Merkel, as a matter of fact, because he couldn't do a deal with her on NATO. I am convinced that that led to her no longer being the German prime minister. She couldn't run for another term as German prime minister. The people loved her. He wouldn't do a deal with her. He literally looked in her face and was like, no, sorry pass no respect right but the queen you didn't muck with the queen she was a grown-up there are grown-ups in the room there's grown-ups in organizations there's grown-ups in celebrity there's grown-ups in politics where have all the grown-ups there's grown-ups in leadership where have all the grown-ups gone where are they because we need them <laughs> I, I think the it's kids are, the kids are running things on Instagram reels and TikTok. <laughs> right. Well, I, I mean, you, you know, where I I'll give you an answer, and then I think that this is a whole nother conversation. But I think it goes oh, back yeah, to the rabbit hole. Yeah. I think it goes back to you know our generation when we were kids. You know, uh, you go back to that old book. My friend uh, was it my friend Flicka, where the kid was raised oh. with a television. Yes, 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 yes. You know, and that's how it was for us, and. You know, it's no fault of my parents or my grandparents, just how things were. However, I didn't really learn a lot of those really good, um, you know, parenting skills uh, until years later that I probably could have been learning when, as I was growing up by observing my parents because they were never around. And I think it's just a compounded situation where it's, you know, it's almost like a copy of a copy of a copy. You know, the further you get from the original, the worse it gets. And nowadays, you know, kids have no sense of consequence. They really don't because nobody smacked them in the head and say, hey, what the hell are you doing? I think it goes, you know, to the participation trophy um, in any sporting event or even at work. Like, hey, cool. You showed up and you did your job. Here's a blue ribbon. Like, really? Like, where am I? You know, that doesn't make sense. You know, there's no sense of striving for excellence anymore because you know that even if you do a subpar job you're still going to get something you know what's the point you know i look at when you and i are playing rugby together you know we had the all minnesota tournament how many trophies did they have do you remember they had two first they and two. second place yep That's you know it. and that was it how many teams showed up for those tournaments 20 30 30 something like that yeah oh yeah right and there's no there's no reward for coming in third good luck <laughs> no yeah and you look at even some of the bigger tournaments like down in wayne state where they've got mm -hmm. 80 to 100 teams showing up you think you're gonna hand out 80 trophies get out of here you're out of your mind 
And I, but it, it gave you something to, to fight for. It gave you something to play for because I wanted that piece of hardware to take home and show everybody, hey, this is what we did. This handful of, of knuckleheads with a bag of balls and no coach, and we're destroying Division One schools like Minnesota. Mm-hmm. That's why I wanted that damn trophy. It gave me something to play for. Now, if, if I went to that all-men tournament with you and we knew that regardless of how well we played, that we'd still get something we could hang on the wall, it wouldn't hold as much weight. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I look at, you know, the military awards in the same way. You know, there were some gimmies. You go overseas, and I know Hackworth talks about this in his book too, in terms of recognition of individuals that went above and beyond, but because some idiot back behind the front lines, A, didn't see it, B, has no relation to it, um, and C, you know, doesn't really understand the dynamic of what's going on up front, you know, ends up rewriting it to make it more wordsmithy for the individuals who are going to be reading it next. And through his giant game of telephone, some guy who single-handedly held off an entire Korean regiment mm-hmm. now ends up getting basically a pat on the back and they, you know, send a yellow ribbon back to his parents and say, well, shit, sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it, it sucks. Um, yeah, no, this is a whole, this is a conversation we could have for an entire day. So you might want to get back to your book. <laughs> I think that's good advice. I think maybe that's good direction. I think maybe we should get back to the book <laughs> as we um, as we as we turn the corner. And again, I want to be very clear: we're literally in the first like fifth of the book. We haven't gotten out of the first fifth of the book. This book is deep. This book is big. Um, there's a lot of things in it. You can take it a fifth at a time. Um, you know, eight hundred again, eight hundred sixty-seven pages. It's no slouch of a book. Um, and the the pace at which it is written is, I, I think RJ would agree, it's a fast-paced, well-written book. Um, you do get bogged down a little bit in Vietnam. There's some technical things that happen in there, and you're like, oh, okay, why are you telling me this? Some of that could have been cut. Um, some of that fat could have been cut. Um, but um, but in general, this the, the, the book is as tight as you could possibly you could probably possibly make it, um, and it is worth your time. We're going to return to, we're going to pick up with Hackworth um, deciding, well, not deciding, but uh, he, he, so he leaves um, Korea for, after his first couple of tours, um, and he goes back stateside, has a few adventures, um, and uh, we're going to pick up on uh, right around page 120 um, with him in there, and he, he has returned back to back to Korea. Um, and he's um, he's on a combined team, uh, designated Tax Force Evans, and where he picks up um, there is very interesting because he makes a point about leadership that I think is worthwhile for us to discuss. Um, he also talks about the skills that are required to play poker, uh, which I'm not going <laughs> to get into poker. I was going to do a whole thing on poker. Not going to get into poker. Instead, I want to talk about the leadership piece. We'll talk about poker a little bit. Maybe we can weave poker in. We'll weave poker in. Um, because I think that leaders can learn from poker and can learn from chess. I think these are two key games that leaders have to play in order to be successful leaders. Um, and even if you don't care about poker, um, and you don't want to lose any money at poker, which he wasn't worried about losing money. But <laughs> if you don't want to lose money at poker, you can watch the World Poker Tournament and actually pick up a ton of good skill sets um, for leaders. And then chess, well, um, chess is the classic strategic game. Um, it ain't checkers, kiddos. I'm even teaching my five-year-old to play chess. Um, I've made my daughters dangerous. 
and I look forward to making my son dangerous. It is a game of strategic thinking. It is also a game of patience, um, and it is a game of, well, it's a game of patience and strategic thinking. I'll leave it at that. Hack, however, here wants us to really focus on leadership, and so back to the book, back to About Face. Uh, in the chapter by the direction of the president, which is a great chapter title. Soon our combined team designated Task Force Evans after Dell Evans, our company commander, was ordered to pass through the front and probe a series of small chink-occupied hills in preparation for a UN limited offensive, which was jumping off the next day. We breezed out, riding the backs of tanks. When we got close to the hills, the infantry dismounted and deployed in a line of skirmishers. Mines, mines, came a sudden urgent cry. We froze. A quick recon revealed my platoon was in the middle of an American AP minefield full of bouncing Betty, t Betty types. For infantry, the worst in the inventory. By the way, pause here. A bouncing Betty is one of those little suckers, and when you step on it, uh, it's a landmine. And when you step on it, it bounces. The old school ones did anyway. I don't know if the new ones do, but it bounces. It comes up. It kind of circulates a little bit in the air, but usually the bounce is high enough. Uh, usually about waist high, sometimes about nose high, and then it explodes and takes off your face or takes out your guts or, you know, does some other kind of damage. Um, yeah, they're, your legs. They're, they're, uh, they're spring-loaded anti-personnel mines are pretty ugly. And basically what happens is, is that when you step on it, you arm it and you disengage that spring. And as you step off of it, it'll spring up. And so it's in between you and the person behind you, and it'll pop up your right to about waist level and then detonate, and then it'll get both of you. So yep. they're, they're ugly. They're ugly. And back in the day, um, they were really hard to detect uh, back in World War II, back in, uh, back in Korea. So back to the book. Uh, we carefully reorganized at a respectful distance behind the tanks. And while the Chinese watched us from the hills, and by the way, at this point in time in the Korean War, the Chinese were helping out their North Korean allies. And so the Americans and the Chinese were directly fighting each other. Just so that you know, um, here on the podcast, uh, Americans and Chinese have fought each other in a war already. Uh, well outside the effective rifle range, the tanks proceeded to lead us through the field, blasting lanes with their tracks. Meanwhile, the enemy started lobbing a few mortar rounds, but never got close. One advantage the Americans always had over the communists in Korea, and thank God because they'd have eaten us alive, was that the Reds could never quickly and effectively adjust their indirect fires, mortar and artillery, nor with their bad como, easily, that's communication, uh, easily coordinate fire support. Once out of the minefield, we started maneuvering up the ridge line. The tanks and tracks supported our attack with overhead fire from the valley floor. It was standard procedure, attacking a hill under an umbrella of fire. Except that after a while, we were getting rained on. The tracks, quad 50s, were chewing up the ground with long bursts right into my people. I screamed on the radio, shut it off, shut it off, you're firing right on top of us. But the slugs kept coming. I grabbed the air panel my RTO dragged behind his radio and started waving holy hell out of it. This long, brightly colored panel would show a blind man our forward edge. The quad 50 fire lifted. Miraculously, we had no casualties. First U.S. mines, now U.S. fire. Who needs an enemy, I thought. Then I remembered who commanded the tanks, and I thought I did know he hadn't done it purposely. For a fleeting moment, I wondered if that friendly fire hadn't just been Milo Rowell's trump card. And I won't get into all of that. You can read the chapter. From the map, from the Valley Floor 2, the ridge looked as if it ran from the top of the objective assigned to me by C.O. Dell Evans, but about 400 yards from the top of the hill, we found that it was a military crest. 
To continue the attack, we'd have to move across a long pool table-like shelf and then come back up. There was no cover, no concealment, no avenue of approach. It would have been Pickett's Charge. No more healthy for infantrymen in Korea, 1951, than in Gettysburg, 1863. I held up the guys and called Dell with a lowdown. He switched to the main... Uh, he switched the main attack to the second platoon, commanded by former NYPD cop, and recalled World War II vet First Lieutenant Jim Lynch, which was coming up another finger. Our job would now be to support their assault by rifle and machine gun fire. We'd been pinched out of the assault, and for the third of easy, it was lucky. Lucky case of being in the wrong place at the right time. Second platoon did not have an easy road. The chinks were solidly dug in, and we were not about to be shoved off their and were not about to be shoved off their hill. The first part of the mission to determine the enemy's disposition was accomplished the minute we locked horns. The second part of the mission to inflict maximum casualties on the enemy was also accomplished. All guns and weapons blazing within the company and supported by tank, quad fifty, artillery, and corsair delivered bombs and napalm. Still the assault force took casualties. One trooper was blown down the hill and rolled into the pool table in front of my platoon. He lay in the open right under the chink's guns. Brave Corporal Victor Cozares from my platoon, acting on his own, quickly stripped his gear and took off like a shot. He grabbed the guy as though he were a bag of potatoes and charged back through a hail of enemy fire to the safety of our hill's reserve slope. Um, or no, sorry, reserve slope, reverse slope. Our doc patched the kid up, and he lived. Cozares was later awarded Silver Star, for his lack of un, or his act of unselfish gallantry, still his feet could have backfired. He could have been hit. Then two disabled troopers would have lain exposed in the open, fire-swept crest until another brave soldier rushed to the rescue and got hit himself. I'd seen and heard about it a million times. A leader has a difficult time presenting preventing such waste. The problem is simply that if an enemy fire can cut down one man, the same fire can cut down a hundred. In a hot firefight, a rifle platoon can take 10 casualties before you can cry medic. And if you multiply by 10, the one rifleman who, fall, who fails, uh, who falls out to look after his buddy, suddenly you've lost the guts of the platoon's firepower. This is the point of all this. So a leader has to be hard-nosed. He must remember his mission comes first, and only then the welfare of his men. If a guy stubbed his toe three feet from a cobra, you wouldn't let his buddy sit down, take off the guy's boot, and assess the damage, especially when a tiger is lurking just behind the snake. A leader cannot give the enemy the initiative by allowing his unit to become ineffective as a result of care for the wounded becoming first priority. Keep your weapon downrange and don't play medic was my standing operated procedure, and I tried my damnedest to enforce it. Any other course carried not only the risk of failure to accomplish the mission, but also the loss of a hell of a lot more men than necessary. You said it at the beginning <clears throat> of our episode today. You said that there's the mission, and you said you even focused on this. There's the mission, and then there's the welfare. That's it. Those are the only two things. But how do you know? How do you know which is which? When the cobra pops up, it's easy. Because the cobra's there. You're, you're freaking out. Like, I, I think of a, a recent incident that happened in my own life. But, um... You know, and and my wife kind of got a little bit mad at me, but you know, <laughs> you you know, you move the person out of the way, 
so that the danger is over and then you can assess a whole bunch of other different things right because that's the mission the mission is you keep this person alive or the mission is um you know well the mission is you keep i'll frame it that way <laughs> the mission is you keep this person alive right so the mission becomes the welfare at a certain point right but sure. there's a line between those two things how do you walk that line successfully how do you know where it is and then how do you speaking of poker how do you win that percentage bet three questions in there um, I think I'll get to the, the, the middle one first in regards to, you know, how do you know where that line is, is uh, creature comforts. Um, you know, whether it's in the office or on the battlefield, you know, if you are going out of your way to get something specifically for you, you don't need it unless it's ammo. Everybody needs ammo. But if it's, you know, a cup of coffee, you know, a, a stiff shot, a hot dog, freaking whatever. Yeah, it's nice but you don't need it at that moment to accomplish your objective. Um, those are the things that you typically try to set aside for your minions if you can. And those are those morale boosters when it comes to the end of a hard fight or a project complete or what have you. Hey, we're going out for beers. Hey, we're going to go get some snacks. We're going to get some food, whatever it is. Um, because that's kind of what drives it. You know, it's almost like the, the carrot and the stick you know, you, you say we have to get this done regardless of what it is, you know, maybe it's that presentation to IBM or, you know, maybe it's, you know, uh, updating the, the company's fleet of vehicles, or it could be something as simple as just making sure everybody gets through a course on the copy machine or the machine gun or what have you, um, reward them afterwards. And if they, but you can't do it all the time. That's the thing. You know, it's 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 those things that when they show up, they're nice. But if they expect it after each and everything, you're going to create a monster where they're going to be doing the bare minimum by day's end because they know that there's no reward in it. You know, if they hammer themselves out hard and, you know, hey, we took that objective, uh, you know, we knocked out that training mission. You know, we, you know, did X, Y and Z. Um, and on one of those, you're like, sweet, you know, um, we're, we're all going to go out together because we all worked hard on this, but the, the bosses, you know, the, the, the upper management, middle management, your leadership, they have to be there working for you too. They have to be slogging in there right next to you because, you know, I never would want to have a meal with my guys that I felt that I didn't earn. And I think that that's a huge part of it too. Um, yeah, again, it's at it's at risk versus reward. Um, however, you know you have to be able to take those risks, and you know, a bad decision is better than no decision. And I think that what hems people up a lot is that they sit there and they think, and in that half a second that they're thinking, they're wondering how can everybody benefit this with no casualties or yeah, wrongdoing no you know yeah. and it's like you can't you can't live your life like that you know you have this individual you know who running across a battlefield to save a wounded comrade you know he very easily could have been like yeah screw that but he saw somebody that he didn't even know potentially got hit he dropped his kit in a heartbeat and he took off running was it a bad decision sure did it work out in the end? Absolutely. But he didn't know that going into it. He just made a decision and he went with it. He didn't sit there and ask for a consensus. He didn't look at his sergeant and be like, hey, look, I'm going to go get him. Can I? He didn't ask permission. He went, shit, there's a problem. I got to take care of it. And again, luckily in that particular situation, um, everything seemed to have worked out. Um, 
And I think that a lot of people can can learn from that particular situation. They're not necessarily the danger factor, but the fact that he was presented with the situation and he had half of a second to, to decide I'm going for it or I'm not going for it. And he he made that decision on his own. But it also requires, and I, no, you're exactly right. Like I'm thinking right now about something that <clears throat> happened to me recently in jiu-jitsu and I was rolling with somebody else and they've gotten demonstrably faster even though they're not demonstrably better. I'm like, why are you demonstrably faster? Like this is ridiculous. But I recognize now why. Like what you just said, they're, they're, they're making the gap between decision and thinking is now gradually yep. tightening up like this. Now, my gap is still broad because I'm still learning skills and I'm patient and I'm fine, but it's getting to be annoying. It's getting to be annoying to me. <laughs> so I got to lock up. I got to tighten that gap. I got to tighten that gap. I got to tighten that gap. I got to tighten that gap, right? And that's what you're talking about in jujitsu, such as in life. It's tightening that gap between decision making and thinking, decision making and thinking, or, or decision making and analysis, right? Uh, paralysis by over analysis is a real thing. Yep. But I think, and I think that the, the, the poker question that you asked in regards to that ties into that pretty well, because, you know, in order to be a decent card player, you have to be able to read people. Mm -hmm. um, luck. Yeah, sure. Luck is part of it. Skill, maybe, you know, if you're counting cards or if you're paying attention to what the other people are throwing in the pot. Okay, sure. But a lot of it comes down to reading folk. Mm -hmm. And as a leader um, in those situations as well, when it comes to risk versus reward, you have to be able to read your guys. You know, and that's, again, if it's they need that motivation every single time, what are you doing as a leader that's failing them? Because they shouldn't be expecting uh, a handout or a party or uh, some kind of award after doing every little every little stupid thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that comes into reading people. There are some individuals that you need to pander to them in that regard, because otherwise you're not going to get anything out of them. Uh, you have other individuals like myself where if you give me an award, I better have damn well earned it. Otherwise, I'm literally going to crumple it up and throw it in the garbage because it doesn't mean anything to me. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and so they're finding that fine line, though, that just comes with experience and it comes with learning how to read the individuals that are working under you and also working beside you. Because for some, it's kind of like, you know, you have those kids that sometimes you yell at them. That's all you need to. There's other times you got to get physical with them because it's the only way that that lesson's going to come into play. Um, and it's either either or, you know, if there's somebody who, who desperately needs a tongue lashing, you know, taking a belt to them probably isn't going to work that much because now oh, they're, no, they're going to, yeah, they're going to look at you and be like, oh, that's all you got. That's yeah, cool. That's right. Interesting. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and am I advocating pounding the snot out of your kids? No, it's no, called, it's, it's called <laughs> discipline though. And you do need to make their life uncomfortable once in a while to remind them where they stand. Same thing goes for your minions. And your employees, you know, um, if they screw up, there has to be consequences outside of just letting them screw up enough to where you fire them, because that's not building them. That's just allowing them to be a fuck up continually until it impedes your organization so much so that you have to get rid of them rather than taking the time to go, OK, wait a minute, something isn't working here. Let's go back. Can we knock it out with some remedial training? Can we correct this particular issue or is it just easier just to get rid of you? pay out some unemployment insurance and hire somebody else. Well, guess what? You're still, you're still back at square zero. Right. So why would you go to that kind of length? Take the time to re-educate that particular individual. And after, after that second training, if it still doesn't take, that's when you 86 them, find somebody new. Clearly you're not cut out for this job. 
go find something else. Go be your carpenter or your barista or your musician or whatever the hell it is you want to do. Just don't do it here. Right. Right. You know, it's like, uh, like real quick, cause I don't want to go too, too deep in this, but, uh, yeah. as a, as a heavy weapons instructor, um, you know, there's a certain personality that you look for in a machine gun mm-hmm. and not everybody has it. Can everybody run the gun mechanically? Sure. Can they shoot it? Absolutely. But it takes a certain personality. You have to be aggressive if you're a, a machine gunner because that's the only way that you survive. And I, it has nothing to do with how strong you are, with how what size you are. It's all about your mentality. And I had a girl when I was in Iraq. She was this little redhead from North Dakota. She was about 100 pounds. She was one of my 240 gunners. She nope. carried between that gun and her armor, she carried her almost her body weight daily. I never heard her complain, but she was also absolutely ruthless on that gun. And Get some. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like she was one of my minions, but there were times where she would scream at me, you know, like, I need ammo, I need a barrel change, let's fucking go. And you got it. You know, mm-hmm. you're taking charge in that particular situation because you're the most critical component. So um, there does come personality when it comes to certain jobs. And I think that that would really is something that a leader would really need to kind of delve into in terms of even in the office environment. Yeah. You have some people that excel excellently when it comes to word docs excel powerpoint you know doing all your administrative bs there's other people that just do it because they need a job you need to find something for them that's a better fit so they actually enjoy showing up and they're not going to come in there and burn the place down someday just because you gave them one task too many right (laughs) you know (laughs) yes 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 I can't remember the first part of that of that question. It's you, okay. you, you, covered, me... you covered all that. I asked you like three things in there. <laughs> <laughs> you fired a this whole is... bunch at me, and I wasn't taking notes. Whoops. That's okay. That's all right. That's what that's what I do here. It's a lot of it's a lot of live fire, and just I lay down, I just lay down a mass. <laughs> just we'll see what works. Yeah. Um, we see what sticks to the wall. That's kind of my kind of my style a little bit. Um, as we turn the corner here, because we got to wrap up. Um, I want to be respectful of RJ's time, and I want to thank. RJ for coming on the leadership lessons from the great books podcast. Uh, we will have him back on because again, we only covered a very minor part of the book, a little tiny slice. We'll have him back on because I really want to, I want to dive into, I want to dive into Vietnam. Um, I've been wanting to dive into Vietnam for quite some time. I have my own thoughts on that war. Oh, just as everybody else does. Um, and you know, the, uh, the, the, the administration of it, <laughs> as does Hackworth, and I want to get into Hackworth's thoughts on that. I want to talk a little bit about um, the the maelstrom of men that were chewed up um, in that thing. Uh, 58,000 guys um, uh, died in what was, in essence, deemed, at least at the beginning, a police action, just like in Korea, and was treated very bureaucratically by Bob McNamara and others. Um, and even for all of that, was almost won and then was lost. And that's the most frustrating thing to me about Vietnam is that you can almost win the war and still lose the thing because of decisions that leaders make. Bad decisions that leaders make. Ooh, I, I've got a... I don't mean to cut in, but that kind of goes back into the, you know, the higher ups not having a clue as to what was actually going on on the ground and being so, so far removed from it that had, say, Hackworth left and they plugged in another person, they would have had 
no clues where to even start. That's why we lost that thing. Yeah. Well, and, and it seems to me, and again, this, this, this is one of those, this is one of those wars where, and I said this when we first invaded Iraq, um, in during the second Iraq war, um, and I, I said this then, I said, I hope that we have battalion commanders who have, who are on the ground and who are in the offices back at the Pentagon. I hope, and I said this again back at the beginning of it, I hope that we have people who have learned all of the correct lessons from Vietnam, not all of the wrong ones. <laughs> again, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> and that is a whole other conversation <laughs> that we will get into in a whole other episode of this podcast a little bit later on down the road. Because RJ and I both have thoughts on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> from looking at how that all how that all ended up. But wars, look, war is the health of the state, right? And um, war is cruelty, as William Tecumseh Sherman once infamously said. You you cannot remake it. You can't make it nice. Um, and leadership sometimes is cruelty. Sometimes you can't make it nice. Um, we talk about it in very sanitized terms on the podcast. And usually at this point in time, I ramble a little bit about what leaders can do to stay on the path of leadership. And so... I'll let RJ go first. RJ, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for your time. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, what can leaders at the end of all this, if they've made it this far, um, what can they learn about leadership from Hackworth, from your own experiences, and how can they use this learning to stay on the path of leadership? Uh in my opinion, uh, both from my own experiences and also reading in the Hackworth, is that the, the one thing that he was really adamant about was getting to know his people. He kept a book with him where he wrote down the names of everybody that was in his divisions, and he kept track of every single person. I, you know, I would be hard-pressed to imagine that there are even people in my office. Uh, my office had 100 people in it back when I was working for the government. I didn't know half of them because I never interacted with them. How many CEOs know exactly who's working for them outside of who's immediately underneath? Hackworth knew everybody. And that was uh, something that really kind of stuck with me. And that was kind of one of my own failings. And one of the things that I learned was that I need to get out and learn more people. I need to figure out what everybody's names are. I need to figure out what their specialties are and see if I can somehow have a, a down to earth conversation because we, you don't know, they might have a common interest with you, but you don't know until you actually start asking about it. You know, what is it you do when you're not here? I, you know, I'm a hockey mom. Oh, no kidding. I played hockey. I know how expensive that is. You know, maybe we can figure something out. Um, just get to know your people. And that's one of the things I really admired about Hackworth is that he, every single person, if you needed somebody tomorrow, he goes, oh, I got a squad here run by this sergeant. He's They're really good at this because he knew everybody who was under his command. Know your people. Be the Vince McMahon in the helicopter for your people tell you what man that that was something it still to this day blows my mind that he just yeah. popped up out of the blue well and you know what we say on this podcast and i've said it in our shorts episodes and i've written it down um which i guess means i'm preaching about it most people in most organizations who are underneath a manager or supervisor they don't know who the mayor of their town is and they don't, know who's on, they don't know who's <laughs> on their city council. They have no clue. 
they may have an opinion about whatever the president of the United States is doing, but it doesn't really matter if they even know who the president of the United States is currently. But it doesn't matter. But everybody knows who their boss is. Everybody knows who that leader is. And that's who they care about. Leaders, your job, and I think Hackworth would agree with me here, your job is to see the big picture, but not be overwhelmed by it. Pull your head up and look around. You can stay down in the details. You can stay down in the trenches if you would like, or you can stay up in the clouds, right? Clouds and dirt if you want. But both of those are suboptimal positions. You have to see the big picture and you have to see the details. You have to do both of those at the same time. You have to know your people, as RJ just said. And by the way, know your people means actually care about knowing them. If you view your people as widgets or just as replaceable cogs because, well, someone here quit yesterday and you'll probably quit tomorrow, you'll never actually get to know your people because you won't actually care about your people. This requires empathy, and I'm not talking about hugging your people or inviting them over for a barbecue. I'm talking about figuring out if they're a hockey mom or figuring out if they really like anime or figuring out what they do when they're off time when they're not at the hobby that they call work. The thing that I would advocate for the most, though, is leaders. In order to stay on the path, you have to sweat in peace so that you can bleed in war. If you're not training yourself, if you're not training your people, and if you're not doing that constantly, and I don't mean at the expense of doing the work, but I mean, if you are not training people for the thing that's going to happen next, don't be surprised when people fail at the thing that is going to happen next. Close the gap between thinking and decision-making. Get faster. Look, I'm guilty of this as well. I mean, I engage in a lot of thought exercises on the jiu-jitsu mat. <laughs> I am that guy. Part of that's the way that I learn, but the other part of it is it's also comfortable for me, and so I have to break out of my own comfort zone. I have to leave behind the creature comfort of critical thinking and go to the creature, the uncomfortable, uncreaturely comfort of decision-making and then living with the consequences of whatever that decision is, whether on the mat or with other people. And you, in order to stay on the path, have to do the same Big Ideas from a Big Book, About Face, by Colonel David H. Hackworth. And, of course, our guest today, R.J. St. John. So, again, I want to thank R.J. for coming on the podcast. I want to thank him for adding his voice to this thing that we are building, um, this machine we're building around leadership. Uh, almost 100 episodes in, so we're, we're creeping up on something here. We're... We're very gradually and uh, deliberately putting putting bricks in the wall uh, or maybe putting bricks in the tower, trying to help you become a better leader today for the challenges of tomorrow. As I usually ask folks at the end of our podcast, RJ, do you have anything you'd like to promote today? Are there any places where anybody can get a hold of you if you want to be gotten a hold of? <laughs> Is there any way people can reach out to you? Anything we can put in the show notes 
so that people can click on it and maybe check a little bit more of you out. I know you don't post on social media too much. So no, no, you're not I'm that guy. I'm I'm kind of a I'm kind of a social media ghost. Uh, I do not have an electronic footprint uh, uh, specifically just because of who I used to work for. Yep. Um, so I'm I'm very very scarce. However, you know, feel free to send me an email. You can hit me up at Orion Red LLC. That is. R-I-O-N, red, like the color, LLC at gmail.com. Um, if you have questions for me, I can definitely fire in your direction. Uh, I will get to them when I can. Uh, I'm not glued to my computer 24-7, unlike some of you are. So uh, if I find it and it's uh, clever and you catch my attention, I will definitely respond in kind. So um, that's about the best way you can get a hold of me outside of calling me, and I am not giving any single one of you my cell phone. <laughs> No, no, no! Never call. Him. Call me. <laughs> don't call him. We have a publicly we have a public number. You can get me through the one eight hundred number. Call me. Don't call him. Don't bother that man. Don't don't bother this man. No, uh, we will definitely have um, his email contact, um, and we'll of course have the mail to link um, for Orion Red LLC um, at gmail.com. in the show notes below the player of this episode of the podcast, as we usually as we usually do. Once again, thank you very much to, uh, to RJ for coming on the podcast. We look forward to having you on again in the future. Thank you. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you for having me. And just one last thought. Just because you have rank doesn't necessarily mean you're a leader. So keep that in mind. Because just because you're high enough up on the totem pole doesn't mean that you're actually worth a shit when it comes to leading. And with that, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> See you, buddy. <laughs> Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red Podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red Book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, Co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan, this is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. 
like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.